My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Amy about psoriatic disease. According to VeryWellHealth.com, psoriatic disease is an autoimmune disease that includes two specific inflammatory conditions. These two conditions, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, or PSA, are a result of an overactive immune system. Psoriasis and PSA primarily affect the joints and skin throughout the body. We also talked about Amy's additional major pains, including mysterious stomach issues and something called PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. I not only learned a ton about these conditions during this discussion, but I also just had an absolute blast talking to Amy. This was so much fun. We went a bit long today. We talked for about two hours and we covered so much. We talked a lot about the generalities of living with chronic illness and trying to date and have relationships and trying to be intimate with people when you are experiencing something so intense in your body, as well as issues around self-image and identity inside of chronic illness. And, you know, it's hard to make a, an intro for this episode because we just covered so much and it was just, you know, it was just so good. It was so good. So I'm just going to keep it short today and just get us right into the discussion because it is a bit on the long side and I just don't want to take up any time besides getting into this discussion that's just absolutely fantastic. I'm so excited to share. We do talk about a lot of personal stuff today, and I just want to let everyone know, you know, I talk a bit about my relationship with Andy in this episode, and I did listen to it with Andy to make sure I had her go ahead to share, and she was absolutely on board. She loved this episode as well. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so everything that I talk about, about my personal relationship with Andy, even though Andy's not a part of the discussion today, she's heard all of it and gave her enthusiastic consent for me to present the episode as it occurred in the original recording. So as I mentioned last week, I am currently out of town. Andy and I are traveling for a wedding. So I'm pre-recording this intro actually the same day as I released last week's podcast. But I do have one piece of news to share with you. So this podcast has actually just gotten signed up for a brand new partnership that I'm really excited about. We've partnered with Rare Patient Voice. This is an organization that connects patients and caregivers with research opportunities. So they connect you with researchers who are developing products and services which can help you and others with your condition. These researchers need patient input so that they can develop products and services that have a meaningful impact on patients' lives. So if you are a patient or a caregiver, you can sign up with Rare Patient Voice. And if you get connected with a research study, you can earn $100 per hour for participating in a research study. So you can make some money while helping other people with your condition uh, achieve a better quality of life through scientific research. And everyone who signs up through Rare Patient Voice using the Major Pain Podcast link will actually be supporting this podcast at the same time. So th there's a lot of potential here for a real win-win situation to help people get connected to research studies, to help the scientific community, to find new and better ways to support people living with chronic illness. And they're looking for all sorts of diagnoses. So whether you have a rare or even a non-rare diagnosis or you are a caregiver, definitely check out Rare Patient Voice. We have a new link that you can click to support this podcast. That link is rarepatientvoice.com slash major pain podcast. You can find that link in the description of this podcast or type it into your browser, rarepatientvoice.com slash major pain podcast. Another great way to support this show is by signing up to support the podcast through Patreon. 
Thank you to our Patreon producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia, who are supporting this podcast at the highest tier of $25 per month. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, subscriptions start at just $2 per month, and you can find all of the information over on Patreon at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, or you can head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com slash support to learn about all the ways you can support this show, including leaving us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you listen to our show. I will also remind you that my guests and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting a doctor. And with that, we'll jump right into our incredible discussion with Amy about psoriatic disease. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hi. I'm so excited to talk to you today. We just had like a 20-minute discussion about delicious Mexican food, so I'm sure this is going to be super fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now we need to get some Mexican food later. I know. That's the problem. Now I'm hungry. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Amy, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Well, my name is Amy Stephanie Perez. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm 34 years old. Um, I used to be a preschool teacher for like 11 years right wow. out of high school, so I was in education. And now after, you know, a few years of kind of trying to, I guess, transition into like being more at home because my body just couldn't keep up with the duties of having like 18 four-year-olds in a classroom. (laughs) Um, I am now doing things in social media and um, interning at a PR company. And I, you know, at the social media company, we, you know, run social media accounts of like, public figures and such. So it's much better for me right now (laughs) working from home without having, I would come home from teaching and be just done. I couldn't even have, I didn't even have the energy to like cook something. It was awful. So I've transitioned out of that. And on my spare time, I've actually done a lot of cat rescue Mm. that kind of fell into my lap. Uh, They find me animals find me. So I just kind of jumped into that. And I was doing that for a few years. And I still do it on and off now, depending on if they find me, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. okay. What's, what's involved in a cat rescue? Do they, like you find stray cats, they come to you and then you, do you help them to find new homes? Yes. Yes. I've pla- I, I can't even count how many cats I've placed in like wonderful, lovely homes. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. So basically I'll find kittens and I, at one point, me and my little sister had our back house probably had a dozen kittens. And what we really worked on was socializing because mm. sometimes they weren't social, even at really small ages. So we really get love on them, cuddle them. We would use my cat, who's also a rescue as kind of like their therapy cat. He, he's such a loving, chill cat that we would kind of let the kittens observe us with him. And it kind of developed like a trust. So we kind of rehabilitated them behaviorally, um, obviously fed them. And we've had really little ones where we had a bottle feed. Um, One of the big, big uh, rescues that we did, one of the latest ones was actually the mother of one of my cats. Now I caught her while she was pregnant and I was like, you know, let me get ahead of this. So I put her in the back house and she gave birth back there. I saw the whole thing. (laughs) It was amazing. And I ended up keeping the first cat that I saw come out. She wasn't the oldest, but she was the second to last. And so she's still my baby. But so we we got them from an early age. 
And now they're all in happy, healthy homes. And I get to see them on Instagram. It's amazing. (laughs) I get to see my cat siblings growing up. And then I've also done um, the capture and like neuter thing where I'll take a feral cat that I know is not going to be, you know, um, good for as a pet. And I just capture them and fix them so that we don't have like this baby boom every season. Mm. So um, that is probably the most stressful part of it, to be honest, because you do get, you know, scratched up and you deal with these very angry, full grown, feral cats (laughs) and you have to (laughs) capture them in the trap. And then like, yeah, the recovery sucks too, because they have to stay with you for like 24 hours They're angry. They're hungry, thirsty, angry because they can't eat or drink before the surgery. Wow. That that's quite the, uh, the activity. <laughs> cat yeah, rescue. Yeah. I've never heard of, of anyone doing that before. How many cats yeah. do you have in your own home? Well, three technically. Okay. Um, the, the two that I have were, were rescues that I, you know, would see in the neighborhood and, um, I never, you know what? I never anticipate keeping them. Like, I'm really good about that. Like, I think of the years of teaching of getting attached to something you love and then having to release it. I think has trained me to be really good with that. But these two cats that I have right now are so perfect that I was just like, no, they're mine. Like they're mine. I have to like, they're the perfect mix. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a dog person. I I had some cats as a kid, but then I developed some allergies uh, and became very much a dog person. And dogs are so great for, you know, emotional support. Do you find that with cats as well? Yes, actually, I grew up being a dog person and I have an English bulldog now Mm. and a chihuahua now. So I'm an animal person in general. But um, I find that I've never had the type of support from an animal that I have now with my cats. Mm. They're just so loving and so cuddly and so interactive. They just want me all the time. It's it's, (laughs) I think I have a unique cat situation. Like I know I'm very lucky because my mom's cat is crazy. Like she, <laughs> you'll be touching her, and then she hisses from like the gut. Like it's guttural. She's angry, and you're like, wow. "Whoa, you were purring a second ago." So no, I know that I'm very lucky with my cats. Like I really am. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's get to know your health situation a little bit. You you teased us a little with you know having gone through some uh, vocational changes to accommodate your health. So let's jump into it. Amy, what is your major pain? Oh, well, the first thing is psoriasis, plaque psoriasis. That's mm-hmm. how this all my chronic illness journey started. And then 10 years after I got plaque psoriasis, I got diagnosed with um, psoriatic arthritis. And then a couple years after I was diagnosed with PMDD, which basically it's it's like the most intense form of PMS ever. I know that PMS is thrown around a lot, but this is pretty debilitating, mm. like emotionally and physically it just you feel physically so ill and you're just when you think your your mental health couldn't get any lower pmdd has a way of really proving you wrong it's really rough um and i've always dealt since i was in fourth grade i've always dealt with really terrible stomach issues um you know i went through something pretty traumatic in third grade but by the time i was in fourth grade i every morning was sick to my stomach vomiting it was just a whole it was awful And, um, I still deal with those issues now and it's kind of undiagnosed. Like I've had a bout recently of colitis. Now we don't know still if I have the chronic condition, Mm. they don't know if it was something that triggered just that one thing, or if 
They even threw around the term stomach heart attack, which is very scary. And it's, we're now you doing process of elimination um, where if nothing else comes up, because I recently did a colonoscopy and endoscopy. Um, so we're waiting on those biopsies and things. But if nothing comes up, then we're going to put it in the stomach heart attack thing, which basically like it just like no, the circulation, like oxygen and blood just wasn't going to my stomach maybe. So we'll, we'll see, but definitely I have IBS, which is a pain. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a ma- it's a major pain. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it sounds complicated. We got at least four major pains going on at once. And these are all things that I have never spoken to anyone about. So I'm excited to learn more. Let's go through okay. one at a time. I want to I understand what these conditions are because I just have like a surface level understanding. So what is plaque psoriasis? Well, I, you know, I kind of use an umbrella term of psoriatic disease because sometimes I feel because I know everyone has seen a million commercials of psoriasis. Have you not noticed that like every other commercial is psoriasis? <laughs> it's like people are desensitized and they think it's something that's just vanity, but it's so much deeper than that. It's an autoimmune disease mm. and you feel sick a lot of the time. And even though sometimes maybe your skin isn't that severe or, you know, whatever it, it your body feels it. It really, really does. Like that, that whole fatigue is the big part of it. But I personally have really severe plaque psoriasis um, that was triggered by PTSD mm. um, in 2008, I believe. Yes, yes. I was a victim of a crime in 2008. And after that, my skin exploded. Wow. But what, how it started was my first time ever getting psoriasis was in, when I was 12. I went to an all-girl Catholic sleepaway camp <laughs> and it was the first time being away for a long period of time for my family and my pets and all that. And I, I really was homesick and I was in a totally different environment. I was in the woods and the mountains, you know, I'm from LA, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so something triggered that. And literally a couple days in my scalp was fully covered in thick plaques and scales. Now I didn't think it was psoriasis at the time, but I did know what psoriasis was because my grandmother had it and Mm. she had it so bad that she was losing hair and, you know, her nails were affected and all that stuff. So I didn't know what it was. I just didn't think that that was something that was going to happen to me. So I went undiagnosed for five years until I was really like, you know, I'm tired of this. It's painful. Like I was starting to bleed and it was getting harder to hide. And so, um, yeah, so it's, it's an autoimmune disorder that causes inflammation. So that's basically what you're seeing on the outside. Interesting. Scaly, red, inflamed patches. And they look different to a lot. It looks different. It's very, you know, psoriasis is very individualized. I've noticed, you know, we can, me and someone else can have plaque psoriasis, but our skin looks completely different. Mine just happens to be on most of my body. And when it gets really bad, they're just these massive plaques that cover my whole leg. Hmm. And it's very painful. It, you know, and sometimes, you know, that the plaques get so thick that like all your epidermis just comes off. You're just left with this raw, oozing, painful skin. It literally feels like you're on fire, like you're a burn victim. Wow. Can't, where, where on the body is that localized? Can it be anywhere? Yeah, it could be absolutely anywhere. There's mm. different forms. Like I also have inverse psoriasis actually. And those are those plaques happen in more delicate areas and there's there it's a different texture it's a different look it looks shiny and pink like you can get them you know under your armpit in your groin in your you know cleavage like for me personally i get it in my belly button and in like my chest area 
like those delicate folds and stuff. Um, but inverse psoriasis can even go to your genitals. Mm. Um, I've been lucky enough that that's never happened to me. Thank God, because I already have enough to deal with, but, um, yeah, so it's, it could be anywhere. Like there's also, uh, a form of psoriasis that gets on your palms and on like the bottom of your feet. Um, I've had a few instances with that very painful actually. Um, so yes, it could be on your face, your hands, your delicate areas, your feet. I mean, anywhere there's skin, it, it can go there. Like I get them in my ears a lot, like even inside like the canal. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. skin conditions are, are so tough because it's not just, you know, it's not just the, the pain because they can be very painful, but it's mm -hmm. also, you know, the, the aspect of like skin can be very visible. You know, if there's something on your mm -hmm. face or on your arms, um, then you're dealing with self-consciousness issues of oh like, my gosh. you know, not wanting to be seen with, you know, any sort of irregularities on your skin. I've dealt with a little bit of this. Um, I think I have, uh, I, d I just got a new dermatologist recently who's like a magician and I'm so excited. Oh, wow. But I think he said that I have contact dermatitis and I, I've been told in the past that I had eczema and, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I don't have a, I don't have it that seriously. Um, but I, I have had a couple of bad breakouts where it's like, I don't want anyone to see my face and I'm in constant itchy pain all the mm -hmm. time. So it, it can, you know, and, and like, I've talked to, to someone on the podcast who has like very severe eczema where you're just like in constant pain, you know, and, yeah. and, and it can be so hard to have something that you can't necessarily do much about, um, that can be so painful and sort of embarrassing at the same time. Is, is that how you feel about it? Absolutely. Like it's like the first word that comes to my mind is overwhelming mm -hmm. because when it comes to the psoriasis in particular for me, it's a very multi-layered issue. It really is because you're dealing with the severe itch and the severe burning and discomfort of like when it gets dry, it cracks open and then they fuse over. So it doesn't really heal. So you're left with this wound for a long time. You know, there's th that aspect, but then there's also the, the aspects of the chronic illness that you don't see. And that's the brain fog, the fatigue, mm. the, um, the body aches, it kind of feels like you're, you get sick every now and again, like with a, a, a virus or a cold or a flu is how I can describe it. Yeah. Like it just feels like your, your body is so much heavier than you can handle. Like it feels like you're dragging. And so there's that aspect, but then there's the, 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 like you said, the social aspect, the emotional mental part. And I feel like psoriasis for me has taken the most from me hmm. because, you know, I've had this since I was 12. I was diagnosed officially at 17, but like, I kind of have forgotten what it's like to be typical, but at the same time, it's not just because I'm used to it doesn't mean I'm like a superstar and I, I do handle everything amazingly because I will say like, it's for many years, I just was single and didn't think that I, anyone would want to date me. I, I, I would just isolate, like it, it took away so much socially, mm. romantically physically, financially, like, you know, I, I just felt like my life has had so many stop and goes because I've stopped doing certain things at certain times. Cause I just couldn't, you know, like I've had to, you know, reframe what my life is going to be so many times that you get, a, you, you can't really make a lot of progress. It feels like yeah. there's a lot of stop and go. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it must be so hard in the beginning when it first started, you were so young 
and mm-hmm. kids are mean. So, oh my gosh, yeah, you. I'm assuming you were probably bullied about it. Um, and then, for I know with all chronic illnesses, when they first turn on, it's like this this switch is flipped, and at first it's like, oh man, this is this is unfortunate. Let's find a way to get this to go away. And then you can't, right. and it doesn't, mm. and then you have to learn to live with it. And there's that yes. that period of transition of trying to switch your um, your thought process around the whole thing from let's find a way to get rid of this to let's find a way to live with it. And that can be so yes. traumatic to go through. Absolutely. And my, I feel like my situation was a little unique because I had been exposed to psoriasis my whole life with my grandmother. Sure. But when I got it at 12, like I said, I wasn't diagnosed for five years. Yeah. So even in my head, I, as a kid was like, what's wrong with me? Why is this ugly, gross thing happening? <laughs> like, and there's also an association with like skin stuff with being dirty, mm. you know? So it's like, like I would like be so desperate to make sure people wouldn't see it because I didn't want to be bullied for being dirty or not washing my hair or having flakes or whatever. Yeah. So there was that. But then like, like at 17, when I was diagnosed, I literally went in there in my Catholic school uniform, you know, all hopeful that I'm going to get healed. And I go in and it was like the most apathetic dermatologist I've ever encountered in my life. And I was a child. Okay. And he walks in and he's like, what's the problem kind of thing. And I show him my scalp. I'm like, yeah, da, da, da. And he's like, okay. And he sizes me up and down like one time. And he had, he must've had like eagle eye vision because I guess he saw one little plaque on my knee that I didn't even think was anything. I thought it was like a ingrown hair, pimple, whatever. <laughs> and he's like, yep, you have psoriasis. Um, there's no cure for it. And I'll prescribe you some medication, some, some creams. And he literally walks out the door. Now, mind you, I already knew what psoriasis was Hmm. because of my grandmother. And when I, the first thing I think about was like, oh gosh, what happens, what's happening to my grandma is going to happen to me. The losing hair, losing eyelashes, eyebrows, um, the nail like stuff that happens, you know, like the, I'm more, I do have nail psoriasis too, actually, but like the, the deformity of it or like the thickness, things change with your nails. And I was just like thinking about it more vanity wise. And obviously I was 17 and back then there was no body positivity movement. Okay. There was not <laughs> low rise jeans were thriving. And <laughs> so my thing is, I just thought about the vanity part and I did go home and cry. I didn't want to cry in front of my mom because I didn't want to worry her, but I did. I shut the door of my room and I cried. I knew what was in store for me mm. as opposed to like a lot of people kind of like, oh, okay, a skin thing, whatever, whatever. I knew it was much deeper than that. So it was really, it was hard. It was really hard. Like that hope, you know, it's, I always just describe it like a roller coaster finding treatment. You kind of click, 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 excited, right? Oh, yay. I'm going to get treated. <laughs> and then when you find out it's a chronic illness, you go crashing so hard. Yeah. And it is what you were saying. It's about reframing what you, like basically altering your expectations out of life. I know that sounds really like not fun, but it's true. I just got into a place of my life isn't going to look like what high school Amy thought her life was going to look like, but I could still have a good life and just reframe it. It's just going to be different. Absolutely. And, you know, reframing expectations can be a very healthy and positive thing because the expectations of a child can be 
fairly unrealistic. So oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm going to be married at 24. I'm going to have my first kid at 27. I want to be done having kids by 30. I'm 34 and I have none of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm 37, although I do have a, an amazing partner, but I'm also, I'm not married and I am not diagnosed. And, you know, oh, yeah. it's very difficult to, to, to have relationships around chronic illness, especially, you mm-hmm. know, for me, the challenge is that I don't know what's going on and I don't know what my future looks like. And that is a calculation for a relationship that kind of is crucial. Um, right. When you're looking to plan the future, but, but yeah, I mean, for, it sounds like in your situation, um, you know, kids can be so mean, people can be so judgmental. And when you're trying to open your heart to someone, to a relationship, not knowing how they're going to react to this thing that is a part of you, that is, you know, something you cannot remove from yourself, there must be um, a lot of anxiety surrounding that about opening yourself to someone. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I I have thought about, you know, social interactions as like, in sometimes in a way I think about it, every new interaction I make with someone who is not chronically ill is a risk for me. Hmm. Like that little sting of a comment or rudeness or apathy can set me back a few months of, of progress. Get what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. Cause, cause we're always like, like I was so much better in my twenties than I was in my teens, but I'm so much better now in my thirties than I was in my twenties. And it's an ever changing process. I'm always feeling like I'm elevating learning, like picking up tools from people in the community, like really growing. But uh, it is a risk dealing with someone new because it can set you back it, where you thought you're like, you know what? Screw what people think. This is what I look like. And I'm going to flaunt it and let's do this. And then one just not so great. I almost said a curse word. <laughs> one terrible <laughs> person can really set you back and like make you retreat into yourself again. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And you know, there is also the side of this where all of the work that you have done to get better at managing this is going to make you a better partner to someone because mm-hmm. you learn how to be accepting of yourself. And for me, that's made me so much more accepting of someone else, you know, like absolutely uh, recognizing the things about myself that I can't change that I have to bring to a relationship that are things that I would prefer didn't exist. You know, it just, it really opened my eyes to like, what am I bringing to the relationship besides that? You know, like, right. I have to make sure that the rest of my relationship game is on point. You know, I got to make sure that what I'm bringing is positivity and like support and that I'm not, you know, contributing to someone else's trauma that by, you know, everyone has trauma of some kind or another. And those like casual comments that, that people often make based off of societal standards that we've internalized, that we believe we're supposed to act like, you know, those things can be harmful no matter what. And when it is, pointed out to you by living through chronic illness and you learn how harmful it can be when it comes in your direction, it teaches you so much about, you know, what you're providing to someone else. And it can make you just like so much more of an empathetic person. So there, there's a lot, a lot of this can be positive, even though it's like incredibly difficult to get through. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Like the thing that gets me through the really craptastic times is like really honing in on all the things that that I'm grateful for because of it. Like, yeah. and I, I know it sounds flowery and and whatever, but I mean it. I really mean it. I feel like chronic illness has a way of stripping down all the insignificant things that most people focus on. Yeah, you because we can't lean on that. 
you know, like, and you kind of have to like sift through what matters and what doesn't just to get through the bare minimum of like saving up some spoons to want to brush your teeth or shower. Like you do have to strip it away. And I always say too, that like psoriasis, I always say psoriasis and, you know, specifically, but also with chronic illness, it is such a good indicator for it's like a crappy person detector it really is <laughs> yeah, that's so good it's amazing it's amazing because like <laughs> it takes a typical person years to find out maybe that someone is really not supposed to be in their life or they're not worthwhile <laughs> but when you're chronically ill that that beep goes off really really fast mm-hmm. like oh okay don't waste energy on this person because they could give two craps So like, I, that's one thing I'm like, okay, thank you for that. Thank you that I don't have to invest in people who, whose heart or mind are not in the right place. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm also so grateful because like, I now have so many connections with people in the chronic illness community. And I have to say the majority of chronically ill people are some of my favorite people. They're the most empathetic, Mm -hmm. kind, understanding, supportive people I've ever met. And these are people that like, they're not even on the same continent as me. And they're like, you know, DM me if you ever need me. And I'm like, wow, like that is amazing. And like, I feel like I can have such real conversations with people in our community because all that other stuff is stripped down. Yeah. We're not going to just talk about shoes and, and, you know, just mundane things. We're talking about real life stuff and there's no need to explain like, oh, I don't know if you know what brain fog feels like or fatigue. (laughs) No, they're like, I'm fatigued today. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, please. Uh, You know, like they know, they know. I just focus on what I'm so grateful for. And I also have to say, it's made me such a better person. Yeah, I'm such a better person because of it. Like really, like I think about like, I'm, look, I'm, I was, I was vain when I was younger. I really was. And I'm so glad that it stripped me away of that. I'm so happy about it. I used to be such an impatient, like go, go, go person, tunnel vision. And now I'm just so much more like I slow down the pace. I make sure I listen and validate. You know, I am so much more empathetic and softer and a lot less selfish too. Like it's just really been, I have to, I have to think about all those things we just talked about that I'm grateful for. I have to think about that on a regular basis to keep me going because I'm sure, you know, the bad days are really bad. They're really bad. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's times where I felt like if I could remove my chronic illness, I wouldn't because it's made me such a better person. But then on the bad days, you're like, what was I thinking? This is the worst. Like, get this out. (laughs) You're so right about that. You are so right about that. I have like in publications have said like, (laughs) like written in the printed word for everyone to see forever. I have said, I don't think I would change anything. I'd keep it. But then when things get really rough, I'm like, yeah. Amy, you're so full of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, like, because when the, the pain level is at a max and you've been on an unproductive streak of just like fatigue and brain fog, you're like, hell no. Why me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like this, this process isn't linear. This, no. There's, there's no equation or ABC one, two, three with chronic illness. This thing is a cycle. It's a circle. There's going to be grief and anger and sadness and happiness and gratitude ever changing, not even on a daily basis, like literally hour to hour. Absolutely. Yeah, so true. You know, before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, I grew up in San Diego, you're in LA. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about the heat. And, you know, down down in Southern California, you get a lot of sun. And 
it can be almost too much, you know? It's like, wow, yes. it's, it's beautiful and hot all the time, and I'm too hot, and I feel sweaty, and I need air conditioning. Um, but yes. It's interesting because, like, you know, I moved to Seattle, and I love the seasons up here, where you have the periods of the hot and the periods of the cold. And it, you really, I really appreciate a hot summer day in a way that I never did in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And you just got me thinking about how, you know, because chronic illness is is cyclical, it almost has seasons. But mm-hmm. when you have a good day, it's like your sunny day, you really appreciate it. When, oh my God, yes. Yeah, when you have a day where you feel relatively good and you're able to participate in society in the way that feels relatively normal, you just, it feels amazing. You know, like I, I could just... Like I can't drive usually because I, of my like muscle spasmy issues and and brain mm-hmm. brain fog issues. Um, I had one day in the last like three years where I was able to drive, um, and Aww. you know driving's not even my favorite thing to do, <laughs> but I'm just like cruising down the street, you know, listening to some music, and I just felt amazing. You know, like th- it right. was the best drive probably of my life. Uh, and I'm not even someone who really values driving all that much. Like saying that I wasn't going to drive anymore because of my health wasn't that big of a loss for me. You know, I'll take the bus or, um, you know, my partner drives me around all the, all the time, which I'm very grateful right. for. Um, but yeah, it just changes your perspective. You appreciate things in a different way. And you know, when you're, when, when I was young and healthy, relatively healthy, um, you know, I, I had all this pressure on myself to do everything with my life and to be, be the best at something. And, um, now I just want to be happy, you know, like now I just yes. want to find ways to live a happy life and it's completely changed my, my value set and what I'm looking for. Yes. Yes. And you know, I, I totally agree with you. I've actually also talked about this too, about how being chronically ill has made me appreciate the things I took for granted all the time. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm able to eat and not get sick to my stomach, wow, it was a good day today. Yeah. Or like if, if I'm, I'm either too hot or too cold. And I've also heard that's something to do with psoriatic disease, but it's true. I'm either freezing or burning hot. So if I'm feeling comfortable with temperature, I'm like, cold. I'm so happy. Like I'm have a little, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, Ooh, I'm cozy. Or like if I'm able to, um, go shopping and not be completely exhausted afterwards or something just a little run errands for a full day wow that was yeah the best day ever you know the things that people take for granted all the time are the things that i'm just like yay i'm just like happy about it yeah and living your life in a state of gratitude is a direct path to being happy yes. which is so interesting you know yeah and yeah. I, I was also very vain when i was younger and i have mm-hmm. found that as my because of my chronic illness and also just getting older, um, I've I've realized that a lot of vanity is me failing to recognize my own beauty. Oh my gosh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. No, I do. Trust me, because you're talking to someone who was extremely vain. Like I was, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Like it ha- it's such a distraction from everything, you know? Mm. And it's, and, and because like your looks are something you can kind of alter, it's also like a controlling thing. Mm. I feel like, you know, like it's the one thing you can, you know, change your weight, change your hair, your makeup, your clothes, you know, I feel like it, it is just a distraction for a lot of people. Yeah. And when, when illness takes away any of that control to change any of those elements, mm-hmm. It can be like very, very deeply disturbing. Yes. It, yes. It was when, when I got my first like huge flare when I was 21, that was so devastating to me because the psoriasis was manageable from 12 to 20, 
just fine. Like I was like coasting. It didn't, I didn't need to pay attention to it besides using some special shampoos. That's it. Mm. So when 21 hit and that's like the woohoo, this is living my life area of your life. I did not handle it well. And I, I had some terrible coping mechanisms and I really struggled for years. And it wasn't until I turned like 26 that I got off my butt and I was tired of feeling sorry for myself that I got involved with like a national foundation. And that's when like the advocacy stuff kind of started with me. I was like, I'm sick of feeling sorry for myself. And I realized that me keeping psoriasis a secret was a part of the problem. Like it was a part mm. of the shame. It was, in, it, it was making sure that I kept it a secret was reinforcing to me that it was something shameful. So I decided to completely go out of my comfort zone and do the complete opposite. And I started posting psoriasis selfies and I would do them like cute little angles and ways. I mean, back then selfies weren't that big of a deal in 2014 or whatever, but um, yeah, I would post the, my typical same old selfies, but was showing my skin and then talking about it. And I was very nervous because it wasn't body positivity time back then. I was very nervous, but um, I kind of put myself out there to you know, family, distant family members and like acquaintances or whatever. And I was very much embraced and encouraged mm. to continue doing it because at the time, the whole thing uh, was psoriasis isn't contagious. Like that was the, the goal because at the time, no one really knew much about it. And we just really wanted to put the message out there. We're not contagious. You can't get it. So I was getting really encouraged from the community, which actually I'm wearing a shirt right now that I made that says you can't catch my psoriasis, literally, <laughs> as we speak. That. <laughs> that was a way that I started getting ahead of my own insecurity. I started making these shirts for myself, which I've been thinking about making many because people have shown interest. Sure. But I would go to Disneyland a lot or like theme parks or whatever. And I, it would be so, you know how hot it gets oh, yeah. over here right? In the summer at Disneyland, holy. And so like covering up wasn't even an option. I wasn't going to do that to myself anymore. So I just mm. got these shirts made. So if someone stares at me, they could look at my skin and then glance over at my shirt. And I did see, it made me so much more comfortable. And it, I, I think it made other people comfortable too, because I was so severely covered that there are, I don't judge people by the way, for being a little like, whoa, like, especially when you're, have you've been as covered as I am, the severity that I've had, so I understand people's, you know, it's a shock value thing. Like, oh no, is she okay? Uh, is that all right? You know, like they're confused. So this shirt kind of, you know, uh, helped me with that. Yeah. And I also, by the way, like speaking of that, like now we're, I kind of touched on it. I'm very patient when it comes to, to able-bodied people and typical people. I'm very patient about it because I grew up in a house with a very chronically ill father. He had- really? really bad rheumatoid arthritis. He had really bad ulcerative colitis. He had diabetes. He had hepatitis C and then eventually he got cancer. So my whole life I've lived with someone chronically ill and he didn't handle it. Well, let me tell you, mm. our whole lives revolved around his chronic illness, his mental and emotional well-being, his physical abilities. And it really, I'm, my sister would agree, my big sister, and maybe not my little sister because she was younger, but my big sister and my mom would definitely agree with me that it, it, it kind of stifled us. Wow. And because he, he was not in a good place with it, because he was such an attractive guy who was great at soccer, the life of the party, when he really got severely ill, like when I was in second or third grade, he isolated, but he made us isolate too. We had no support. 
his only support system was his wife and his daughters. And we really let it control our life. So I'm very patient understanding when it comes to support systems and people who aren't ill because I was in that place. I thought I was supportive. I thought I was there for him. Now when I'm now being chronically ill, I'm like, man, did I miss it? I totally mm. missed it. It wasn't just doing the things he couldn't do. It was asking how he felt. It was, you know, checking in, letting him vent without rolling my eyes or like not rolling my eyes, but like literally kind of just being like, okay, yeah, I've heard this before. Now I understand on those days, he was really having a hard time. Yeah. And so he's passed away now. He passed in 2012 of cancer. But now I, I totally see it different because I really did think that me and my sisters and my mom were doing such an amazing job. But really, we were just doing the bare minimum to make his life easier, I guess, and, and kind of being there physically. But mentally and emotionally, we weren't meeting it. Like, and I do have some regret about that. And I almost wish that the severity of our chronic illnesses would have kind of overlaid a little bit and we could have been there for each other, but we kind of literally missed, we miss each other, like passing ships in the night because I was chronically ill, but it didn't get really, 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 really bad until a few years before he, a couple years before he died. But as far as like the, the other symptoms, like the PSA and like all the other things I deal with now, it wasn't that bad in my early twenties. So I really do wish we could have, you know, been there for each other. That is fascinating. And yeah, I mean, both sides of that equation are so difficult. Like being chronically ill, for me, a huge part of it has been learning how to communicate what I'm feeling to my support system people, because it's really hard to do that in a, in a positive way. You know, like when, when I'm feeling terrible, I just like, it's hard to be kind. Um, but yeah, on the other side of that, you know, when you are really not feeling well and you ask someone for help and they, you know, sigh frustratedly because they have their own thing that they want to do, um, you know, it's really hard to find, to, to not feel bad about that from the chronic illness side. It's also really hard to not do that from the not chronically ill side because you want to live your own life mm-hmm. too. So, like, developing language and, like, you know, sitting down and talking about these things, developing some sort of expectation, um, I, you know... A huge breakthrough for me was learning that, you know, to think back through my behavior after a bad flare-up, when someone was helping me, think back through how I handled it and try to see it from the other person's point of view. And if there's any chance that I was rude or unkind or frustrated with them for trying to help me, to make sure I say, hey, if, if I was rude or anything, it had absolutely nothing to do with you. I was having a really rough time. This is something that I, I want to work on is treating you more kindly when I'm not doing well, but I really appreciated your help in that moment and you did a good job, you know, and like that type of language has been really helpful for me. That is so significant. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, I feel like because I grew up in a house where like my dad's behavior always had a cloud of an, of a, an, uh, a cloud of an excuse over it. Hmm. He doesn't feel good. He's having a hard time. But that doesn't mean that we can acknowledge it later because now I, I kind of was going, I was like that before. Like I kind of wanted everyone to read my mind and leave me alone when exactly. I want to be left alone. Yes, exactly. And love me when I want to be loved. Exactly. But now, now when I act like a brat and I'm, I'm, I have no qualms about calling myself out. Okay. Like I'm the first one to do it. I have no like I, I will be the first one to be like, Hey, you know what? I was being such a little brat. It's cause I wasn't feeling well. And I probably should have told you, but you know, I'm, I feel bad. 
you know, it wasn't you. And I, I really don't mean to make you feel that, you know, I do definitely like to acknowledge or like now I even go a step further, like with my mom, if she, she likes to ask questions a lot and I get really impatient with a lot of questions, like in a row. You know, like, especially yeah, if I'm trying too. to like, yeah. if I'm trying to end that conversation. <laughs> oh my God, me too. When yeah. I'm not feeling well and I get like five questions before I can answer one, I just, I just can't answer any. Yeah. I'm going to shut down. Yeah. So now instead of me being how I was when I was younger, like, oh my God, mom, ah, you know, I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm not in a good mood right now. And I don't want to hurt your feelings. I've literally said, I've said that probably <laughs> twice in the last three months with my mom. Like, I do not want to hurt your feelings. I'm a little tactless right now, mm. you know? Um, but yeah, and, and, and this whole issue is making me think of like the delicacy of chronic illness and intimate relationships. Yeah. Like that is, we could do a whole episode on just that. Yeah. Like that is... I've had a lot of long-term, not a lot, sorry. I've only had three boyfriends. So, but like they've been long-term and one of them, I was eight, I was fine and normal. And then I developed the chronic illness in it. And then the other two, I've been like chronically ill, the whole thing. But um, I think it's so hard sometimes and it's understandable. I don't judge anyone or myself for this. It's so hard to remember to ask your partner what their needs are because they're actually just being thrown into a support system role that they didn't apply for. Exactly. If they didn't apply for that job, yeah. now, now there's a label for them in our world. You're a support system. They're yeah. like, what? <laughs> you know, it's a big job because this is not just normal support system. Like we're talking like we have to get put under for procedures. You know, we're on all types of medicines that cause this, that, and the other. A lot of things affect, affect our ability to be intimate with our partners and that's their need. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's our guilt that that's a factor mm -hmm. too. It's <laughs> such a, it's such a loaded topic. Yeah. Um, and automatically, like I've said this before too, but like, this is just, I don't know if you, I'm going to share this with you to see if you've kind of thought like this too. I've always thought about myself as in, in a way of like pros and cons list. I think like that in general, like I always think in pros and cons and I've always, and I'm sure it's very biased because you know, this, my self-esteem doesn't great all the time, but I always see my con list as being like down the page, pages long hmm. and my pros list being probably maybe something, a handful of things. Hmm. And a lot of those things on the cons list are, it's all chronic illness related. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, I, I totally relate to this. And you know, I, I've been with my partner, Andy, for over five years. And the one time we almost broke up was talking around my chronic illness and our future. Uh, yeah. And it was really intense, you know, like having this discussion of like, we even had a discussion at one point of like me saying, it's like, I, I don't, I might need to be with someone who's chronically ill, you know, like, yes. <laughs> yes. like we should start a chronic illness dating app. Um, but, but we made it through that and it was, it was really tough and we got way stronger after that. And a big part of it was like developing that language around how to talk to each other about it. Um, finding ways to like look towards the future together. Cause that's something that's really hard for me is to look towards the future because yes. I don't know what my future looks like being undiagnosed. So like finding, finding ways that we could do that, that was comfortable for both of us, um, you know, kind of meeting each other in the middle on this thing. Cause she's a real future planner and I'm a real live for the moment type person. Mm -hmm. So finding, you know, finding ways to look towards the future that are not overwhelming while also paying more attention to what are we doing in the moment, you know, kind right. of meshing our styles together 
was was really helpful. But yeah, I mean, there was this time, it was like right around Valentine's Day uh, several years ago where we talked about breaking up. <laughs> we're yeah. like, we're like uh, that thought of like, am I, am I bringing you down? You know, like by being, yeah. by being sick all the time, am I, am I making your life worse by being, right. by bringing you into this thing? I have no choice, you know, like uh, I have no choice but to be chronically ill. And you have a choice to not have to deal with any of this. Why are you making this choice to, right. to be with me? Um, and yeah, I, and it, but it's, I hear what you're saying about like the, the pros and the cons list. And I, I think similarly, you know, Yeah. but I, I really, really feel like you're selling yourself short on your pros. I really do. <laughs> I've you. only known you for an hour at this point, but um, I appreciate that. But I really yeah, you're, do. you're. I mean, obviously, you're super fun to talk to, but also like the, the lessons that you learn from chronic illness will make you a better partner. And when you find mm -hmm. that right person, um, you're gonna be like you're gonna be set up in a way to be a good partner that other people won't. Even though you have your bad days, you know, ev right. even though you can't always show up. There's a lot of people that are fully healthy that are horrible partners and can never show up and have no empathy. And right. Uh, and yeah, I really, I really, you know, it's hard to see your, it's hard to see your own good sides. It's like vanity. It's hard to see how beautiful mm. you are when you're, when you're having self-consciousness around it. Like, you know, there's, as I got older, I would look at photos of myself when I was younger and I was like, why was I so self-conscious? Look at this hottie, right. you know? I know, yeah. yes! <laughs> so then, but what that taught me is like, stop, you know, instead of continuing to have these feelings of like, I'm not what I wish I was, knowing that I used to think that when I can look at myself and think now that person was attractive, what can I do to see myself that way now? You know, like, what can I do to reframe the way that I see myself to to learn to be able to see myself in this moment as attractive because not everyone's looking at all of my flaws you know right like people don't judge each other the way we judge ourselves so learning how to pull myself out of that that view of myself has been really challenging but like really beneficial for me and and learning how to let go of some of this guilt about being chronically ill and feeling like I'm, I'm bringing my partner down with me. Like she, she and I have couples therapy together, which has been super helpful. And one of the big things for me was like, she's with me because it is her choice. I don't need to feel guilty about her making that choice. That's her right. choice. She knows how sick I am. She knows what bad days I'm going to have. And she's still making that choice. So I right. had this thing in my head of like, I need to protect her by, by pulling away you know? Right. And that was really, really bad for our relationship. And when, once that was pointed out to me uh, and it like emphatically repeated over and over, like, this is, this is her choice. And for me to pull away is me trying to make her choice for her. And that's horrible. You know, like that's, that's not what we want. We want to be making our own choices and be in a partnership where we're both there by choice. So right. yeah, it really changed my perspective and things have been, you know, really great between us for 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 quite a while now we also we were living together and she was always seeing a hundred percent of the time when i was having a bad day and we yeah. moved into two apartments on the same floor uh of an apartment building that. and it's been great it's like you're not feeling well uh i'm gonna make sure she makes sure that i have water my nintendo switch 
the remote control <laughs> and a snack. And then she just leaves me to it. You know, when I need to wallow in self-pity around feeling horrible, mm -hmm. I want to do that alone. You know? <laughs> yes. Yes. It is so much more comfortable being sick when you're by yourself. Sometimes yeah. when you're really in it. Like you're sweating, yeah. you know, you're, you're crying. Yeah. You're cussing. You stink. You haven't showered in days. <laughs> oh my. Amen. Okay. I, I, I know there's a lot of shame in people in the chronic illness community that don't like to admit that they skip showers sometimes, but it happens, whatever, Absolutely. you know, like do what you got. It takes so much energy to shower and wash your hair and Absolutely. do all that stuff and shave. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. when you're in a flare, you're just trying to make it through alive. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. And yeah, especially that, that colitis flare really threw me for a loop. I was in agony. I was like, I didn't care about anything, <laughs> you the, know? What did you call it? The what threw you for a loop? The, the colitis flare I had, that little oh, colitis, colitis flare. Epis. I heard colitosphere and I'm like, is that a medication? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, the colitis that I experienced yes. that sent me to the ER, they gave me wow. two doses of Dilaudid. I was still feeling it, a Vicodin. I was just not okay. But yeah, you're so right. It is so much easier to not have one, have someone spectating how you're dealing with <laughs> yeah. a flare. And, and asking you, you know, how are you doing? What can I do for you when you can't even respond? You know? Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. Yes. Literally if sweating like crazy, like just don't talk to, don't look at me. Yeah. Like, just totally. don't look at me. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like if I have to hear, maybe you should go outside and walk for a little bit while I'm dying. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> or have you eaten something or like the little questions or drink more water? I know. I know. Yes. Like I, yeah. during a flare, I don't want interference really a lot. I just want to be left alone really because then it puts me in a situation where I might hurt their feelings and that's causing me some stress. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have the energy to be tactful. It's yep. going to be impossible. You're going to be rude. So sometimes it is better to just have your needs met and then to just sit in it and, and let it pass. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to get through it. And sometimes the best way to do that is alone. Sometimes not, but you know, to have that option to not be spectated upon has been really, <laughs> yes. really good for us. You know, it, it's, it's helped us to have this separation of, of living space. Um, Absolutely. And we're, now we're looking at maybe like moving to a house or something, but trying to maintain that separation of living space the way we have it now. Uh, and, you know, there's no right or wrong answer with relationships, especially when you nope. have, you know, a third party to the relationship, which is a chronic illness. It's like, yes, you know, you're, you're in a threesome, whether you want to be or not. And, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You're like <laughs> trying to manage this third person, which is like an angry toddler that, you know, yeah, has no, that has no self-control. <laughs> yes. I was, I was going to say asshole. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, totally. No, the third person in this relationship is so rude and selfish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does not care about either of the other two person's needs. No, um, not at all. Yeah. It's tricky. <laughs> um, it man. is. It is. <laughs> this made me totally think that when you're someone who's chronically ill in a, in a relationship with someone, there's so much unwiring and like mm. peeling the layers back that most relationships don't have to deal with until mm -hmm. later on in their lives. Like yeah. you talk about even like you cannot even realistically talk about the future with someone who's able-bodied without talking about things that like you really need to talk about, like deal breaker yeah. things, like having children, mm -hmm. finances, li like living arrangements. Cause like to me, like I'm not, even, I live in LA, so I'm not even looking for a house because it is expensive out yeah. here, but if I was, I'd be thinking all one floor, not even steps to oh. even get in the house. Oh, I'm thinking a walk-in shower that has like 
access for like a, a shower chair or a wheelchair or whatever. I'm also coming from the place of like when my dad was dying of cancer, he did it at home. And so he was on hospice at home and it was not fun. Hmm. like living in a small house that's like not a lot of space like i just think about things in such a bigger way now and you have to have those conversations and you know in a way i guess it it does it it can lead to you not quote unquote wasting your time with someone because you can kind of like talk those issues out through earlier but then you also have to like what we as chronic illness people hate to do is talk about the future that we don't know what it's going to look like you know, so it, it, it's a very unique situation for sure. But I feel like maybe that whole pro and con list for me happened because I literally was in a relationship where the guy told me that you would be so beautiful and perfect. You would be perfect if you didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And, or he would do this thing. By the way, I really want people to hear this and understand this. This is what I'm about to say is really toxic. When someone is rubbing it in your face that they're such a good person because they love you be, despite yeah. your, what it's your skin looks like or what your chronic illness brings to the table. Run. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> run. That is not a compliment. No, it, it, it has nothing to do with you. They're only talking themselves up. That's it. Yeah. And th- both of those things are horrible because there's no such thing as perfection. You know, like th- someone can be perfect for you. But that doesn't make them a perfect person. There is no such thing as a perfect person. But like relationships can feel pretty damn close to perfect because of the compatibility. But that mm-hmm. means that you accept each other's weirdness and and grossness and quirks and illness. Mm-hmm. And that is not perfect. You know, that that is just reality. So if right. he's if he's unwilling to see the person that you are and without seeing your chronic illness, then obviously right. he's wrong for you right and he's wrong for he he doesn't hasn't done the internal work to learn how to be in a real relationship yet right and you were saying like chronic illness is a crappy person detector it's also like a compatibility test you know absolutely yeah absolutely Absolutely. that's something that andy and i really struggled with like really struggled with and and had some really hard questions that Mm -hmm. we had to to get through you know it took it took about five years of us being together for andy to tell me that she could that she's like, I think I am with you on this journey, no matter what, you know? Oh, I love that. Yeah. And it's something that I really wanted to hear, but didn't want it to be false. And, and it took a really long time to get there because, yeah, but, but what that looks like for us is not necessarily like us committing to be together forever, you know? Right. Uh, because we, we have not reached that point yet. We, We've we've both talked about this. I'll have to I'll check with her to make sure I can put this stuff out on the podcast. We, yeah, we've I, was had, gonna, I was thinking this. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had discussions about like we do feel like we love each other to the point that we want to get married, but without me having a diagnosis, with that uncertainty about the uh, uncertainty about the future, we really want to kind of get a little bit more of our front of a foundation there before making that call. But either way, we want to be in each each other's lives forever. You know, like yeah, the big fear yeah. is that if I were to find out that I have a degenerative disease and I don't have that long, you know, and we mm-hmm. have no reason to think that right now, but it's something that we have to talk about because we don't have a diagnosis. Um, right. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that we suspect that or anything like we've looked into that and haven't seen evidence of that, but without that firm diagnosis, it's really hard to know. So right. it's, I don't want to enter into a, uh, a marriage with someone where it's like, I don't know if I have, you know, like 60 years or 20 years or five years, you know, right. I want to have a sense of that. 
And my doctors can't answer that question because they have no idea what's going on. So, right. um, so that's been really tough. But, you know, we finally got to this place where Andy was saying, you know, no matter what that number is, like, I want to be a part of your life and I want to have a relationship with you in the closest way that we can. And like, I want to be in, in this with you no matter what. And that's like such a powerful thing. Because like, I also don't know if I can, if I want to have kids anymore, because if I'm not going to be around to raise them, then, or if I, or if I'm going to be so sick that I'm not going to be able to do it, you know, that's the more realistic concern at this point in my life is like, um, you know, I, I had a dog for 17 years. He passed away about a year ago. And it was at the point where it was like, I was really struggling to take care of that dog. And I'm just like, how am I going to take care of kids? You know, but right. if I can get, med- get on medication that makes, that helps, that gives me some more energy, some more brain clarity, um, then it's something that I've always wanted to do. And that's like, I can't even give Andy the answer to that question, which is uh. like fundamental to what the future is going to look like. Um, and, and, she needs to be able to decide that on her own too. So we're, we've even talked about like, if she wants to have kids and I'm not able to, you know, like changing the nature of our relationship to make that possible for her, but still right. being in it together, you know, in some right. way. And we, we hope yeah. that, you know, it doesn't need to be traditional. It doesn't need to be what everyone else expects, expects you to do. It needs to be what works for, for this relationship, for this set of circumstances. And chronic illness throws a wrench in all of that. And being able to talk, talk, not talk around it, but talk through it and right. have those real conversations took us years. Like, because I wasn't willing to do it for years. You know, a lot of this yeah. came from me being just like, I don't want to have those conversations because it, it's so upsetting to me to think like, what if I die in five years, you know? Yeah. But it's been yeah. five years and I'm still here and I'm actually doing better now. Um, awesome. You know, but it, these things go up and down, but I feel like um, we've been experimenting with new medication, even though we don't know what's wrong. And I've seen a little bit of improvement and, you know, you just don't know what's coming. So having a partner that's willing to um, roll with those punches is so crucial. Absolutely. And I think you're looking at it very pragmatically, realistically. I don't, I don't think, you know, I think some people who don't live the lives that we live would probably think this is kind of like dark, but it's, it's something, something that needs to be talked about. These are really hard conversations. And I totally identify with what you're saying about like, most of it was you being like, no, I don't want to talk about this. Like, you know, because it, it stings us really like to the, to the root yeah. of like the things that we really wanted and saw for ourselves. Like, like for, for instance, for me, I was a preschool teacher for 11 years. I felt like I was parenting all these kids. And now I'm like, I don't know if I can be one. You know, and I know I have the capability. I know I have the love. Like, like I know I have the love to care for kids who aren't even mine and the love for these animals that aren't going to be mine either. So can you imagine what, it, how amazing it would be if I could have my own, you know? Mm. So, so it, it's very hard to talk about these things realistically sometimes because it's it, the, uh, the conversation isn't really stuff you want to even acknowledge sometimes. Exactly. It's stuff. It's the fears and the worries. Those, those, those passing scary thoughts that happen throughout your day in your brain. But once you vocalize it and it's out there, it's a conversation. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And I think being in a romantic relationship with someone who is chronically ill definitely forces the people in our life to, to do things totally different to talk about these things, these uncomfortable conversations and like really breaking down and like, 
like, okay, getting to the root of what the behavior was or what the issue is, you know, or like, where is this coming from? Because we also have the guilt and we have like the, the frustration. We can be a little short tempered, you know, all that stuff. So it, it's, it's a very multi-layered issue for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And for me, a lot of it is like, instead of building for a future, why don't we live our lives now? Every single day right. that we have together that is a good day is a gift that is wonderful. And the more of those we have, the more lucky I feel. And that is right. like a fundamental flip of how I used to feel, which is like, I need to find someone that I can go the distance with. I need to find someone that is like going to be a good, um, like I can tell now that they're going to be a great parent someday and they're going to be a good partner for a lifetime. Right. It's like, you don't know that. You, there's no way to know that. So right. all you can mm -hmm. hope for is to like, build for the best present that you can and and try to do things together now that feel good for both of you and have joyful experiences now and, and right. live a happy life now because now is the only now that you have that you know that you're going to have so just live it absolutely yeah. absolutely and i think the whole child you know having children thing is a, is a hot topic i don't think a lot of us talk about it openly all the time because it is a very sensitive delicate th yeah. there there's ad advocates that are pretty well known that i've known for a while or you know they never talk about the whole child thing but we've had conversations about it as women and now i'm 34 so like i know it's a cliche to say the clock is ticking but it's true it really really is true and it, for me it's it's a topic that is so it's it's a raw nerve for me because like i said i've always loved children i always i i do have a heart for it but on top of that in 2000 okay so shortly after my dad died i found out i was pregnant Wow. Very shortly. I'm talking less than a month later. Wow. Um, and I kept it to myself because I wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be. But, you know, my boyfriend at the time knew, um, didn't tell my friends, you know, even my mom or my sisters, nothing. My sister's a doctor, by the way, which is a whole other thing that we could talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, so I went through, you know, a little, you know, weeks passed or whatever. Which, by the way, I don't know if this is applicable, but I found out I was pregnant through a tarot reading. That's really? why I took a test. <laughs> really? Yes, I went. Yes, I went to a a grand opening of this like you know magic shop in Santa Monica, and I was like, yeah, let's do it. They're doing readings. I took my friend, did a little five dollar reading, and she was like, I see a pregnancy here. Like you're <laughs> pregnant. She didn't even say you might be pregnant. She said you're pregnant. Wow. I was like, no, what? I was like, please. One of our listeners, like, Sunny, is going to love this. Keep going. Sorry. Okay, good. Okay, so she's like, you're pregnant. And I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, right. And she's like, but here's the thing. You're going to get really sick. You're going to get really, really sick. And uh, I don't know that this is going to turn out great. I was like, oh, you know what? <laughs> so I did drag my feet to take a test, but I ended up taking it and I was pregnant. I was pregnant and... um. Everything was whatever. Like I was extremely tired from the pregnancy. I, I was exhausted. That was like one thing I know if I ever get pregnant, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be real tired. And I couldn't stand the smell of Mexican food. Isn't that crazy? Oh no. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm Mexican. So, and no one knew I was pregnant. So they're eating Mexican food. And I'm like, Ugh. Um, <laughs> so, so time goes on. And then I start getting these really, really, really bad pains every night around 9 p.m. I would get these ebbs and flows of intense, intense, mind numbing pain, like cramping. And then like it would stop for a few minutes and then it was back up and back down. And I'm like, is this what contractions are? 
but I'm only like a couple months pregnant. This is weird. But I kept on experiencing that. And then I started having bleeding. Hmm. And I went to the, the doctor and they're like, yeah, I mean, your urine test shows that you're, you're pregnant and everything, your blood work, all that stuff. But we're going to send you the OBGYN. We're going to have to get a, you can have you get an ultrasound. Um, and this was around like two months of being pregnant, I think. And they did an ultrasound. They said, your uterus is empty. You lost the baby. And I was like, in a place of acceptance of it. And like, okay, this is, you know, it is what it is. I was being very pragmatic and like realistic. And then the bleeding continued and the pains continued. I was like, what is going on? And I never got the blood work results back from the doctor about what they saw if my, uh, my hormones levels were elevating or decreasing, because then we could see if I was really pregnant or not. Right. Didn't get the phone call. Then December arrives and it was three months to the exact day that my dad died. And I wake up at 4 a.m. I don't know why I woke up, but I woke up and I'm like, okay, well, let me go pee while I'm up. And so I I lean forward on the toilet just because I'm tired. I'm like resting my elbows and I feel the most insane pain on the left side of my stomach and the most intense pressure I've ever felt. And I was like, something's wrong. I go into my mom's room and I'm like, I think I might still be pregnant. And I think something really went wrong. And she's like, okay. And I was like, like I was rolling around writhing in pain Mm. and the ambulance comes and I'm like, Oh, every little bump felt agony. And so then they roll me in and I do an ultrasound. It was like the ultrasound itself was so painful. There was so much pressure and I could see on the ultrasound screen black, like normal and then black. And it was all blood. I was internally bleeding so severely because the baby was in my fallopian tube. It was an ectopic pregnancy, which if it goes undetected, women die of this all the time. People, the baby will die, will be lost hundred percent of the time. It's not in your uterus. It's somewhere else. It's just, so all the blood vessels are around this baby in your fallopian tube. So when it, ex- when it bursts, you, that's pure blood vessels that are just bleeding into you. So I was rushed into emergency surgery and, um, I was terrified, but it was, I felt more grief about the pregnancy loss after the surgery more than when I thought I lost it naturally Mm. because something about having 12 staples in your stomach and being in that much pain and leaving the hospital with no baby in your arms just does something to you. It just does something to you. I have never cried so intense from my soul. It wasn't even from my brain, from my heart, from my thoughts, nothing. I would wake up in the recovering from this surgery every day for about two weeks and instantly be already crying. Like it was coming from my soul, like deep. I've never felt grief like that in my life, in my life and laying there in so much pain with staples in your stomach, you know, all the stuff of recovery afterwards and having nothing to show for it is a whole different type of emotional anguish that I've never experienced. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So like for me now, I only have one fallopian tube. I'm 34 no plans in sight so far to be a mom. And it's something that really, I think I think about it every day. I have to say, I think I think about it because I'm actually pretty good at like catching thoughts and like letting them happen for a little bit, but then releasing them. I don't Mm. really like ruminate on things too much anymore because I find that to be really unhealthy for me. So I think I do think about it every day in some way, shape or form. I think about motherhood the ectopic pregnancy, my age, my fallopian to all in some way, fertility is something that I think about. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I and this is there a genetic component with psoriatic arthritis? I mean, you mentioned your grandmother has it. Is that yes. something that you think about? I mean, I think about this being undiagnosed, like yes. pass, passing on what I have without knowing what it is, is not even a risk yep. that I feel like I want to take. So I've started to think more and more about like, if we were to have kids, like is adoption something that we'd consider because, because I don't necessarily want to take the chance of passing this on if it is genetic, but I'm having genetic testing done. So hopefully I'll find out. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> no, I, I actually know it. That is a huge thing I think about too. Like, I, I think about parenting and children in such a crazy way because I did go to school for that. I did was a teacher. I kind of asked myself, I think everyone should ask themselves, can I emotionally, mentally, physically, financially handle raising a kid by myself in the worst case scenario with a, a child who, who is either learning disabled or physically disabled or on my own. Like I really go through the worst case scenarios of like what a parent has to go through. And I, ha I ask myself, can I handle that? You know, and I think everyone should do that. I think yeah. everyone should think about parenting to the level that chronically ill people do. Hmm. That's just my opinion. But I do. Yes, I definitely have thought about how I would feel if I had a child and I passed everything on because autoimmune disorders are rampant in my family. You know, my dad had so many and I, you know, I get compared to him all the time. You know, my, when I got my colitis thing recently, my little sister told my mom, she is her father's daughter. That was her <laughs> comment. Um, and I, I, I tend, I got what my grandma had. No one else in my family has psoriasis besides me. So like the psoriasis part, I can kind of be like, uh, it's possible that they could have it. They could get it. But I don't know how that all works. Like, cause it's skipped a generation for my yeah. grandmother. Right. And my mom doesn't have it. And my cousins don't have it. It was just me. Um, so I, I do think about that, but I kind of more think about it in like the realms of like my father with the autoimmune thing, hmm. you know, the, you know, cause oh gosh, the autoimmune bucket is so big. Like, yeah, but you know, if, if your parents had made that choice, you wouldn't be here. It's so I know, complicated. I know. It is so complicated. Yeah. 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 Tell, tell me about, um, psoriatic arthritis. We haven't even delved into oh, that yeah, yet. We haven't. <laughs> yes. So, so I had been experiencing, a, I've been experiencing a lot of chronic pain in my, after like the whole, like when I was robbed at gunpoint and like the PTSD thing oh, wow. happened. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like I, oh yeah, I don't. Okay. So I didn't mention that earlier. Yeah. So I was robbed at gunpoint when I was 21 and it was a whole long-term drawn out trial thing and, and death threats. It was just a disaster. Mm. So after a year after that happened, I was diagnosed with PSA. But now when I think back to, okay, I think back, when did I start feeling really crappy? I, I, was experiencing aches and pains and joint pain for a long time before that. Like, I, I think for sure, by the time I was like 18 and 19, I was already probably, I probably already had PSA. I, I really do think so. But I always thought it was in my head or it was like depression pain. Hmm. You know how people say depression hurts. So sure. I was like, okay, maybe I'm, you know, a little depressed or maybe, you know, I overdo it or I don't, I always just kind of put it in the bucket of it's maybe just me, you know? And I think that's also something that women have to deal with a lot. Like there's studies that are shown that like women just don't get taken seriously a lot when it comes to like, you know, physicians, like they yeah. kind of put us into a category of their emotional, it's in their head kind of thing. So I kind of just, you know, took that on and said it to myself. <laughs> yeah. When, when you get gaslit enough by doctors, you do it to yourself absolutely it's so second nature it comes yeah. on so gradual 
you know, and I also have the perspective of, like I said, my big sister's a doctor. I have uncles that and cousins and nephews that are doctors. Like, you know, uh, my mom's a, basically an expert. She managed my father's health so amazingly. So like, I just come from like a more of a place of, um, I try and be understanding of them too. Like mm-hmm. I, they're heroes, but they're not superhuman. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I, I really am patient about, I'm, I manage my expectations with support system and doctors. And I have a very, like, I've t- spoken about this a little bit. I'm very tactful when it comes to doctors. Like I, cause I hear what my sister has to say as a doctor. And she's like, we don't like this. We like this. We don't want to do this. Like I, and I keep that in mind. So I kind of have an inside scoop and I've had like really easy relationships, at least socially with my doctors, because I take what my sister says into consideration. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that that's this is something I, I this is a whole other topic. It, <laughs> you know, being able to communicate effectively with doctors is so hard. It's yeah. so hard. I just had a little bit of a rough appointment yesterday and oh. I, it like really shook me up, you know, where oh, no. it's that feeling of like being steamrolled when the doctor's just like talking and talking and then you try to tell them what's up with you and then they just interrupt and like keep talking over you and then say okay well we'll talk about this next time I'm like oh my god I just got here (laughs) I really need to talk to you please (laughs) yes yes and you know what this is making me think that like able-bodied people would have no idea what we're talking about because like I'm about to say something that sounds crazy but there is an excitement about meeting a new doctor there's an excitement Hmm. about treatment there's an excitement about a new physician a new treatment plan. You're like, Oh, is relief on the horizon? Like you get like, okay. <laughs> I feel terror with new doctors. <laughs> really? Oh, oh I'm yeah. So desensi- I think I'm so desensitized. Like maybe it's an Amy thing because I'm so just like, they're just people, whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm just like, like, this is another opportunity for someone to deny the existence of the thing that's been plaguing me my whole life. You know? Well, yeah, I think your situation is very unique with the whole, like not being diagnosed. And like, I would probably, I understand that the whole, like, daunting feeling of it yeah and i and i get that too trust me especially like with the stomach things that i've dealt with because they yeah because that is kind of undiagnosed yes it is the the goal like they you know i've done gallbladder things like tests like i've done radioactive tests, all this kind of crazy stuff to try and pinpoint what the issue is we still don't have an answer so i get the whole like damn it doctor (laughs) you better have answers for me today like when you see a new specialist or you see something or you try something or whatever it's you know, like you do kind of like, okay, is this going to be some BS, you know? Yeah, so, totally. but I really try and temper that. I really try and be like, Amy, get it together. Like, you know, the better you are, the better the outcome is going to be. Don't go in with like an attitude or already frustration. Don't, don't assume they're not going to help. Let's, but also not, I also tempered my optimism because yeah. that is a hard crash too. And like, I, I want the few things that I do is I definitely keep a list on my phone of like, Things that have have been happening so that because my sister has definitely grilled it into me, like we basically have 15 minutes, like our schedules are so packed, you know, so I try and like as for as far as for me, I try and shorten my part, but definitely make sure I talk about the things that are on my mind and affecting me the most. And then I also, if I'm meeting a new doctor, like I have a unique tact when it comes to doctors. I, I use my personality, like I schmooze, <laughs> I, I really try and, 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 you know, lay the charisma on thick. And, and even though, even if they're not receiving it, I take moments, like, you know, the moment they do something good, I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for doing or saying blank. Like my last doctor really made me feel uh, invalidated and unsupportive. So in a way I'm setting a boundary by talking about someone that has nothing to do with them. 
Yeah. I'm basically saying this is not what I'm happy with. And thank you so much for doing the minimal right now. Yeah. <laughs> so like I'm I'm using my my knowledge of my my the doctors in my family, my knowledge of being a preschool teacher, because you know what? Sometimes dealing with adults is like dealing with kids. So I'm taking everything and I'm like applying it to this situation I that I need a really good outcome for. Yeah, totally. Um, can you tell me a little about like what what is psoriatic arthritis this is something i'm not even super familiar with I, you mentioned oh, okay. aches and pains what what is yes. what is the definition of this disease so it's it's it is a, a part of psoriasis not everyone with plaque psoriasis has it by the way so i want to okay. make that clear some people just have plaque psoriasis or a skin related psoriasis issue and some people have only been diagnosed with PSA. But the difference between psoriatic arthritis and, and rheumatoid arthritis is rheumatoid arthritis is kind of predictable in the joints that it affects on a regular basis. Whereas with PSA, it could be one day, oh my God, it feels like my knee's going to implode. And then the next day be somewhere else. Huh. Like, it, it, you know, it's not every day the same. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some people who say, no, Amy, you're not right. For me, it's the same. It's very individualized. Sure. And I want to say that it's so different for everybody. But for me, one day, like for instance, last week, my hands were killing me and I work in social media and interning PR and all social media related. And I'm on my phone all day. I couldn't even go more than 15 minutes without taking a break and like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through? Um, whereas this week, my hands are okay. But my ankle is bothering me and my neck. And like, so there's kind of like, it could affect any part of your body, whatever mm. it decides. That's the thing about psoriatic disease. It's not predictable. One week you're great in, in one area. And then the next week you're, you're terrible in that very same area. So yeah, it's, it's very unpredictable. And basically, you know, it's all about inflammation. Okay. That's what it is. Yeah. The immune system is, is attacking itself and causing inflammation wherever it sees fit. How is it diagnosed? Is it like a ANA test? Um, it's, it's yeah. So I got diagnosed in a not typical way. So I don't know how other people get diagnosed. I was diagnosed while at a dermatologist's office doing a routine like physical to do a study for a research drug trial. Hmm. And so we were, you know, doing the preliminary whatever. And he was kind of, you know, do you asking a lot of questions? And it was like, a huge um, stack an inch high of like tests and questions and whatever. And um, yeah. So he basically was like, yeah, you have psoriatic arthritis. I see the inflammation here. I see it there. Like, and he was just touching my hands without, I didn't even know it had anything to do with psoriatic arthritis, but he was pinching certain joints on my body and having me do certain motions. And without him even asking, I'd be like, ow, ow, that's kind of tender. Like, oh, that's a little hard. You know, like I was like, oh, 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 I don't know. Like I, <laughs> I was very reactionary to the testing that he was doing. Yeah. So he was like, you know what, Amy? Yeah, I see your joints are really swollen. Like how long has it been like that? So it was a very casual diagnosis. It wasn't like me. I, like I said, I thought it was in my head. I thought I was just, I, I was only 22, but I thought it was just aging <laughs> <laughs> or depression. So I put it in that, in that bucket. So I wasn't like one of these things where it's like, I was seeking an answer and I finally got it. No, it was very like, okay, well, wow. And the funny thing is I didn't even know psoriatic arthritis existed before the diagnosis. So that yeah. was a very daunting, the daunting part of that was like, wow, my dad has such bad rheumatoid arthritis and he's had knee replacements. His joints are deformed. He can barely walk or open things. And that's where I was like, I'm 22. He got it at 40. What's going to be my future? 
So, yeah. So it was a very, you know, just a, not a big deal. The only big deal was after the fact when I was like, oh crap, I have a form of arthritis. Like it kind of hit me later. Yeah. What do you do to manage that? Do you take anti-inflammatories? Is there medication that helps? Um, there's, you know, there's so many more medications now than when I first was diagnosed with everything. There are so many form- biologics and, you know, um, there's even methotrexate. Mm-hmm. There's, um, uh, what else is there? Biologics, methotrexate. I'm sure I'm forgetting some things. UV therapy, but that's more for skin. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I would say my main goal for a long time was getting clear, but not, that was when I was more vain. I just wanted to get to a place where I wasn't in pain all the time. I would say I'm not really treating my PSA, Mm. but a part of that was part of me being so untreated for so long is because I didn't know how these medications would affect my child rearing abilities. Mm. And I work with a lot of pharmaceuticals as like, you know, giving my opinion and putting my inputting what I think about things. And I would always talk about that. Like there needs to be more research on how as women we get affected with these medicines. So I have only done a couple of biologics, but I wouldn't say that my quality of life has been better because of them. Like I'm currently on a drug research trial right now. And I would say my flares are shorter maybe, but other than that, I haven't responded to treatments very well at all. It's so hard to tell sometimes. Like I, I, I mentioned, I've been experimenting with new medication recently. It's like some, some, it felt like something was helping, but I wasn't sure what. And then it was not the thing that I thought it was because I went off the first thing and then I got worse. And then it's like, yes. And then I went on something else. I'm like, maybe this helps, but I can't really tell. Sometimes I have to go on and off a couple of times to really understand how my body's reacting. And other times you have to be on something for weeks before you can even tell if it's doing anything. And it can be impossible. It can be impossible to remember what you felt like before. You know, that this is something so weird about chronic pain is that it's almost impossible to remember what it feels like when it's not happening. Yeah. Do you have that? Like the specific, yes. like the specific, how do I describe what this felt like? If I'm not in the midst of it, it's like my, I don't even know how to explain it. I don't, I don't even know if I'm remembering exactly what it was. Yeah. I think there's a, co- the coping mechanism like that our brains go into is forget about it. Right. Yeah. Like it's so un- intolerable and unpleasant sometimes that like you kind of, your brain kind of sifts through it. Like it doesn't really retain the severity. And like, it's funny because like when it comes to the food stuff, like I now know that I'm allergic to dairy and was as a Mexican is, is absolutely terrible (laughs) because we love cheese. Right. But yeah, like I still have moments where I eat dairy and it's not until I'm, you know, dealing with the after effects where I'm like, I'm never eating dairy again. Exactly. Uh, Then time happens and I'm like, let me, let me see if the same, the same thing that always makes me sick makes me sick today you know like it's that i've done that so many times yeah it's crazy and you know what's the the, the interesting thing about what you were saying about how like it's hard to tell about how treatments help or not it's there's also an emotional aspect to the way that we feel and the flares that we experience so sometimes it's hard for me to be like do i feel better because my mental health is better or do i feel better because i've had a really chill week 
and I haven't been stressing out or I've gone a little bit more sleep. Is it the pill? Is it the injection? Is it the sun? Is it the moon? Like who knows sometimes, you know, like it's, it's really hard to tell. So sometimes like, that's one thing when doctors ask me, do you feel better? That's one thing where I sound real dumb and I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like, <laughs> uh. I'm like, maybe yeah. <laughs> like I kind of like, I sound, I, I go from being articulate and proactive to being like, I don't know. <laughs> like yeah, it's totally. crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it's bizarrely hard to explain what's going on in your body to a doctor. I, it's, I, yeah. I still feel like I'm trying to get better at it. I, I stay up, you know, I'm like up at night trying to fall asleep, but really just my brain is going through like, are there different ways to describe my symptoms that I haven't been trying? Is the way that I'm describing my symptoms the reason that I'm undiagnosed because I'm not doing it right? You know, it, wow, is there yeah. like other words that I could use to tell doctors about what's going on that might lead them to the right diagnosis? Um, and then also, like you, I I feel this pressure to always be really careful to not say anything that could be um, translated as anxiety. You know, because oh God, like, yes. because then doctors like they they just completely switch off. It's like, you know, because I I've been having a I just had a heart monitor recently, and we discovered that I have a periodic arrhythmia, which I think is what uh. I'm think I'm experiencing as as palpitations, like heart palpitations, mm. and I have been talking around that trying to explain it without saying that it feels like I'm anxious because if I do, then the, then it's like the door closes on trying to treat anything medically. And then it becomes an emotional health issue where doctors just refuse to even help. So trying yes. to keep, trying to keep that in mind while talking about this, you know, the physical symptoms is like, it, it's all, it's this juggling act that I still feel like I, you know, I haven't mastered it. Cause if I had, I'd have a diagnosis maybe. No, I don't think I honestly like it's so easy to blame ourselves because yeah. it's the easiest thing to do, right? Like we always want to be like, could I be doing better and all that kind of stuff? But no, like I don't believe that at all. Like I think it's more like when you find doctors, it's like any relationship. It takes it's like dating. It takes a while. It's not <laughs> not I've, everyone I've said that before. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you know, and I do totally agree with your, what you're saying, but there is a level of anxiety and pressure you feel when you have a relatively good amount of momentum with your healthcare stuff. You're like, okay, we're maybe getting somewhere. And I understand that feeling of feeling like there's landmines that you can't step on yeah. that might completely halt the progress that took a year to make with still no answers. You know, um, I've been on this stomach undiagnosed thing for over two years now mm -hmm. since before COVID. So I totally understand. And, and, um, I owe, there's also a, a delicate dance with pain and I'm sure you've talked about it on here at some point, but making sure that you're asking for help in a way that doesn't seem like you're seeking oh drugs. My God. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about this. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, you know, the first thing that doctors accuse you of, if you ask for pain medication, uh, with a doctor that you haven't been seeing for at least like a couple of months, then it's immediately, they assume you're a drug seeker. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so upsetting because I don't know that a lot of people would understand besides people like us, the panic that we experience when we know we're about to be in a lot of freaking pain. Yeah. And when you don't have that little like safety net of, of something that's stronger to help you through, mm -hmm. you're like, oh my gosh, because like I would get these stomach episodes, like attack things. I used to call them gallbladder attacks. I just didn't even know what was going on and gallbladder issues running my family. But they, I've had one that lasted 13 hours Ugh. in unbelievable pain. 
cold, you know, cold sweats, fever, like just nausea, like every type of discomfort I, you could imagine for 13 hours straight and how amazing would it have been if I had some kind of stronger medication to get at least the stress managed because I was freaking out. I couldn't get comfortable. It was awful. So yeah. And you know what? Unfortunately, I think the way that I've managed that is when they give me the little ibuprofen, (laughs) you know, know, the one that you get at the, at the um, pharmacy, I take it for a little while to see if it works, if it manages the inflammation, if it gets better, blah, blah, blah. But I definitely will go back and be like, that does not work for me. Mm -hmm. Like I will do it their way. Yeah. Just so that to get them off my back about doing it their way. Exactly. But that means living in discomfort for a period of time. Yeah. So it just feels like this battle nonstop. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a battle that I stopped fighting when cannabis became legal in Washington oh, state. Because, yeah. it, you know, <laughs> I, I've had a lot of relief from that. Although recently I've had to stop using it because <laughs> I've had issues recently with, uh, with my heart rate. Um, you know, uh-huh. I was talking about this heart monitor thing and I've had a couple of episodes where I would take like a cannabis edible and then my heart rate would just go crazy. Oh, really? Yeah. So I would be like, you know, just like lying down kind of high with my heart just racing and not knowing why. And it's like really, really uncomfortable. So I've really backed off of my cannabis use recently, mm-hmm. but it's also coincided with my new doctor giving me some new things to try for, um, you right. Know, managing a couple of these symptoms, uh, including heart medication, which seems to be balancing out some of those palpitation issues. And I Mm -hmm. I think that maybe that's just not mixing well with cannabis, but yeah. So now I'm back to feeling like I don't have a, uh, you know, an emergency, what you're saying about like having something in your back pocket for bad pain days. That's so important. It is so important. I used to have take tramadol, uh, which I stopped doing just because it was, it got too hard to get it. And then weed became readily available. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I got, you know, similar relief from cannabis products. But yeah, I mean, there, there's so many barriers. It's like, why, why do we have this many barriers? We have this science, we have these incredible medications that can be so helpful for so many people. But like, the rationing of who gets to have them is insane. It's just like so mm-hmm. unfair. And, I, I, you know, there doesn't seem to be a way around it right now, unless you just have a really good relationship with a long term, you know, care provider. Um yeah, it's just like another layer of, of things that we have to deal with as chronic illness patients that's just oh ridiculously unfair. That's like, why are you putting these extra <sighs> things on us? We're just trying to get by here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, the amount of things we could talk about when it comes to all this stuff yeah. could be like <laughs> 25 episodes easy. I know. Um, like, it's, yeah, because I also heavily rely on cannabis products. I, I started off with edibles, but I felt like it was a little too unpredictable for my liking. Mm-hmm transition to like the vapes and then now I just smoke straight flour. Yeah. I find that that is the best for me personally, yeah. physically and mentally and emotionally. Like it's just, I know, especially now, like in LA, we have amazing dispensaries. Like mm-hmm. I'm kind of like weed bougie. That's what people tell me. I'm kind of bougie. <laughs> like I go for such like, I pay pretty good money on it, like in like specific strains, but like the strains are so well done now that like, you don't have to worry about freaking out. Like, you know, exactly what to expect. And I, I lean towards, um, Indica. I Me don't too. really do Absolutely. sativa because sativa does make you feel a little like, who am I? Where am I? Like, I don't really like, <laughs> no, like I like the body high. I really yeah. don't need 
to get that whole like trippy feel and yeah. all my stuff is a hybrid but super indica dominant and, and actually it helps me with my eating because i have mm. stomach issues and so it does make me indica you know makes you hungrier but um yeah i had to get away from the edibles because i found it too unpredictable and it was giving me anxiety and panic attacks sometimes so i had to like lean towards that yeah for sure yeah i definitely you know i like to have all three around you know edibles well ed like candies and tinctures and vapes i have like two different types of vapes usually and some flour um yeah keep keep the options open yes, <laughs> and i'm also absolutely. very very indica heavy and i really like a one-to-one -one thc to cbd ratio i feel yes. like that's that's a pretty reliable body high um yes you know, i i'm really looking for a body high that doesn't hit the head too hard because right you know when you when you use it every day for pain it, you need to find ways to like think clearly but the weird thing for right. me is that when i'm having really when weed was working really well for me, I would be way more clear-headed on on cannabis than off because of my brain fog. It seemed to be helping yes. with the brain fog. So, like, when I was feeling normal way, way back in the day and I would use weed for fun, I would get high. And it'd be like, oh, wow, I'm stoned. This is fun. But then when I'm using <laughs> it for chronic illness, it's like, I feel terrible. And weed brings me closer to feeling normal. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting experience because it's a completely different experience than using it from a from a normal state. I totally agree with you. I really, really do. Like, there's a sense of calm that happens, but it's not just calm and like the like whoa, like typical like pothead kind. It's it's like a sense of of calm because I know I'm getting relief, mm -hmm. and it, I I it's just there's an overlying sense of just like clarity because my brain isn't like when am i going to feel better am i going to feel better am i going to get like like the whole like mental part just slows down because i know okay after this puff i'm gonna start feeling a little better and i can focus on work a lot better yeah but i will say there are times where like you know i'm you know needing i desperately need to take a, a, a puff because I'm so nauseated. I can't focus or my God, my sciatic nerve pain or whatever it may be. And like, I, I find that I can work so much better on weed, but then also I have moments where I'm like, maybe I, it was too much of a puff and I get little like, Whoa, I actually am a little high, but you actually forget. Like mm. you could be in that state of highness without realizing you're that high, but every once in a while I'm like, Oh wait, I think I'm a little high, <laughs> but you're right. Like it does, it doesn't feel like, you know, stereotypical, like pothead stuff. It doesn't feel like giggling and like, you know, zoning out on the TV sometimes, who knows, but you know, it's, it's different when you're chronically ill and you do use it every day. Like I I'm sure if we stopped smoking weed for like a while, I'm sure when we pick it up, it would feel different. Mm -hmm. But when you use it every day, it's a totally different vibe. Yeah. I just wish there was more research being done. I mean, there's like all these weird regulations about, uh, I, I heard something about how there's only one farm in the country that grows weed for research purposes because it has to be standardized. So there just isn't enough product to do that much, re much research on at a time. So we're so behind in learning how it affects the body. And, you know, the body has like an endocannabinoid system or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we just don't know that much about how it's affecting us. And I feel like it, it is so effective for chronic illness, Ill, illness patients. It's mm -hmm. the number one thing that people on this show have talked about being helpful. And I, I feel like we all deserve that help and we need the scientific community to back us up on this and to, to do the research, to find out what is the best safest way to use it. You know, I, 
I'm I become more and more frustrated recently about this because I've been using it, you know, pretty pretty consistently for about five years, and right mm-hmm. now is the first time in like five years that I'm really backing off of it because the results I'm getting have changed since starting these new medications and right, you know, I'm like great. I will focus on the new medications, get that working for me first, and then see where we go from there. But but it's like all these other medications on the market, they do research about how they interact with each other and how long-term yes. use can affect the body. And like, we need that with cannabis as well. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I really would love some data here. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I want to know, like, if there is something negative that we're staring down the barrel of, I would love to know, like Absolutely. truly. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's definitely, we have to, because it's something that I know so many people in our community community use just not a lot of people talk about it. There's some shame behind it and all that stuff. So I'm glad that you're talking about it. Yeah. I mean, we, we, everyone with a chronic illness deserves as much relief as they can get. And if this will provide relief, then, you know, then I'm all for it. But I want, I, I really want people to be able to do it in a way that is safe and responsible. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. And you know, I, I, hearing you say that you, you know, were consistently using it for five years and have to kind of stop now, like it kind of gave me a pang of anxiety, like putting myself in your shoes. Because if it's something that I so heavily lean on, I don't know how I would feel about someone saying, or me having to decide I need to back off of this. I think I would get really anxious. I don't know what that was like for you. Well, it was not what I expected. That's how I absolutely would have felt. But because I'm getting better care all of a sudden and we are trying new things, you know, I, I need something to lean on. And when I have nothing, no options, weed became the thing that I leaned on. And right. now that I have different options, I'm very open to leaning on other things. And there might be even better options. Because it's also like, you know, I, I, I wasn't able to get out of my flare-up on weed. I was able to survive it. And I, I'm looking to get, get out of this flare-up. If, if these medications can get me out of the flare-up, which is still too early to say, um, then I will gladly give it up, you know? If, That's if a I great can, point. Yeah, if I can get some of my functionality back and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm i a part-time wheelchair user. So, mm-hmm. you know, I use wheelchair on the days where my legs aren't working so well. And we don't understand mm-hmm. why. It's like some days I can walk a little bit and some other days I can't. And, you know, if I can get back to the place where I can use my legs reliably, and that means that I don't use weed anymore then a thousand percent I'm going to do that. You know, I love my wheelchair. I'm so grateful for it. I, I love using it. I have a great relationship with it because it's given me so much of my, my life back. But, right. but if I can get back to the place where I could like go for, for jogs and bike rides freely and not worry about my legs not working. I mean, I haven't gone for a jog in years, but um, I've experimented a little bit getting on the bike recently. And it feels, the, the fact that I can do that is a sign of progress and it's amazing, but it's also terrifying because I never know when my legs are going to give out on me. Um, oh. So to, to, to be able to go back to living without that fear, you know, if that means that I don't use weed anymore, thousand percent, I'm going to do it. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't think about it that way because I guess my brain is still stuck in chronic illness mode where I think this is forever. Get what I mean? Like, yeah, but you just never know. Like you really, chronic illness is one of those things where it's like, find the best way to deal with it now, but always keep yourself open to the possibility of progress. That's the thing that I, I really, you know, shut off that possibility for myself for a long time because I hadn't seen progress in so long. And that, that constant hope for something that wasn't happening was starting to really 
wear me down and be bad for me. So I kind of, I let it go. And I went to like, how can I make my life as good as possible from this point? And kind of built back up some strength from there because I paid right. more attention to what my body wanted. And I got a little bit better at learning how to get some light, light movement. You know, uh, I know exercise is a whole topic, but I, I prefer to think of it as movement instead of exercise, get my body moving a little bit. Um, and then trying these new medications, you know, getting on the heart medication was the thing that um, seemed to get me moving a l- like pretty quickly. Um it made a, 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 a it made a sizable difference pretty fast, and then I actually like I haven't even talked about this on the podcast yet. Although this is going to come out like a month from now, and I may have mentioned this by this point, but mm-hmm. I had a back injury. Uh, I just tweaked my back, and I went on ibuprofen, and like five six days into it, I started feeling better overall in a way that I've never experienced from oh, using wow. ibuprofen. So. We're now thinking that I might have an inflammatory condition, which we never thought before. I was going to say, yeah. I was literally going to say, then th- that's something to do with inflammation, my friend. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. And I've tried ibuprofen so many times and I've never felt a, a damn thing from using it, but I've never tried it for for a week at a time. You know, I was on it for for several weeks uh, and, and, I th- and that's around the time I started the heart medication. I'm like, I feel better. What's happening? And that's when I was like able to experiment with getting on the bike and I was like, oh my God can I, can I bike again? But I went off the ibuprofen and then I took a dive. So yeah. So then I went back on it and I got a little bit better again. So I took this information to my doctor and she's sending me a safer daily use anti-inflammatory. And if I respond well to that, this could potentially open new diagnostic pathways. Um, So yeah. So we just, you just don't know, you know, you might stumble into something all of a sudden and, you know, be doing a little better than you expected, but that's for someone with, without a diagnosis. With, for someone right. with a diagnosis, there's always research happening. There's always new stuff coming, coming down the pipeline. Uh, you're, you're participating in research trials. You mentioned you just, you just don't know. Like, it is not static. It is not a straight line. It mm-hmm. goes in cycles and seasons, and sometimes it gets better. And you have to be right. open to that. If you're not open to experiencing that, it might pass you by. Yeah, and that's such a good point. I think that that's kind of just like, very much so reinforces like what I've told people about like there needs to be a balance like let yourself grieve but also like don't like it's it think about grief and like the negative feelings as like a room that you visit once in a while but Mm. don't live there don't live there like just be in there and feel the feelings kind of like one of those rage rooms right yeah (laughs) okay go through that and then leave like don't live there because and like I think that's another thing where like (laughs) God, us chronically ill people, chronically ill people have so much to think about where we kind of have to, yes, accept the reality of our situation, but not to the point of complacency and like yeah, giving up. Exactly. And I think that's a, that is a line that I have difficulty navigating because even the, the mere like idea of saying like, you can't smoke weed gave me like, a, <gasps> because like in my <laughs> brain, I'm like, this is forever. Like I can't, cause I haven't responded well to treatments that I kind of just like, all right, I accept that you know, Amy Stephanie Perez is different from everybody else. Cause like the very same things that I'm on, other people are on are like, it's amazing. My life's perfect again. And I'm like, okay, well not me. (laughs) Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's a delicate line. And, um, we have to be so aware of those things because you see how easy it is that like, if I let myself kind of hone in on this, like I'm never getting better. I could easily spiral. Absolutely. easy. And if you, if you tell yourself, you're never going to get better you make it more likely that you won't. True. Um, 
and, and I, you know, this type of thing is, is getting into a touchy area because I do not believe that you can heal yourself with the power of the mind. If you have like, you know, a chronic illness that, that is a serious condition, you know, you're not going to be able to heal yourself of psoriatic arthritis by thinking happy thoughts and thinking Absolutely. and thinking about clear skin. And for someone to say that, I find offensive. You know, I, it really bothers me when, when people imply that. But I absolutely think that you can find improvement by, by adjusting your mental pathways and by, you know, addressing the way that you think about what you're experiencing mm -hmm. um, and by trying to open up some positive pathways in your brain, you can find a better way to get through it and possibly find some improvement. You will not heal yourself, but you might find a way to, you know, to, to live in, in a way that is more in harmony with what you're experiencing and to improve your own quality of life. That I wholeheartedly believe in. And there's a, there's a slight distinction between those two things, but to me, it's like a line in the sand, you know? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more, 1 million percent, because I even tell people, like, usually, like, you could tell what my state of mind and my emotional state is by the, what's going on on my skin. Like, it's pretty mm. linear. It's like, wow. I also said this, that every plaque has a story because for me, it 1 million, it's so personal to me. I can tell you these came out after this happened. These came out after that, especially <laughs> because my psoriasis is so directly linked from my, to my traumatic event that I don't have a choice, but to see it that way, because these spots do tell a story. Oh, this man. is my life. That is so this complicated is because that is not your fault, but it must be nope. so hard to convince yourself of that. Yeah. It, it is. It's hard. It's really hard, especially because, you know, I was so young and I did have really bad coping mechanisms, you know, like partying and like not taking care of myself and, you know, just like being doing unhealthy things to cope with like the severity of what I was going through, not just with the traumatic events, but with with my body. You know, like mm. I was dealing with so many things at once and I have had periods of my life where I blame myself a lot. And I've actually had people in my life tell me kind of inadvertently that it is my fault. Like, well, if you hadn't have been doing that, or if you would have just done this, like someone always has something to say about how we could be doing something better. <laughs> yeah. Someone's I, always asking if you've uh, tried yoga. Oh my God. I'm so tired of that. And yeah, if I have to hear one more time, one more time to try this diet and to be positive, I might lose my ish. Like I'm yeah. not playing. Like it is so aggravating. It's so easy for people who are able-bodied or have no experience with chronic illness, either as support system or as the sufferer themselves. It's so easy for them to say these like things that they see on Instagram. Yeah. Like, no, like this is a person, this is highly individualized. And if if the solution for all of us was to do yoga, eliminate gluten and and meditate do you not think we'd all be doing that <laughs> yeah. like we're not dumb we're not masochists we want help you know like yeah so yeah it's yeah it's crazy <laughs> i just had a thought about that for the first time it's like if you don't have a chronic illness and you start meditating and doing yoga and going gluten-free and you might feel better than you've ever felt then it becomes so easy to recommend it to everyone because you're like i did this and it worked but if you don't have a chronic illness you're starting from a completely different place, you know? Uh, and like, yes. and those are all great. I'm gluten-free. I love yoga. I, you know, uh, th these are good things. I'm not saying don't yeah. do them, but it's like Absolutely. The, the implication that that can cure, can cure people, especially from people who don't know you at all. It's so offensive. Yes. And there's an implication that we're lazy. Yeah. It, there's a little bit of like, well, if you would just do this, 
then you would, and if they make it sound like the solution is so easy, that it's just the only thing preventing us from, from being cured forever is our own like laziness. We're in our own way or something like it's it's offensive. And I just really feel like, like, I don't know if any support systems are going to hear this, but I would just say like, I would really refrain from commenting (laughs) or suggesting unless you're asked, unless it's coming from a genuine place of concern. Like just don't comment unless it's there's genuine questions or sincerity with your concern, because we are BS detectors and we pick it up. Like we know when someone's really, they're asking a question, but they're really saying something. Most questions are statements anyway, you know? So like, I would just, I would just say refrain from your personal opinions on it. And it's one thing to ask questions to like educate and really get an understanding of what someone's going through. But when sometimes I notice, by the way, in social situations, some people don't know what to say. Some people are just awkward and aren't good. They don't have the gift of gab. So they end up talking about the thing that's like in the line of sight. Mm. And when you have psoriasis, can you, can you see how that's a problem? (laughs) Can you see like when, like I have, you see, you can see my nose. It is so that's psoriasis there. Mm. Like it's literally the first thing you see. Like it's the first thing that walks into the room is my psoriasis. And so can you see how when people like use your very obvious thing as a way to socialize or have something to talk about in the group, which by the way is mortifying because the last yeah. thing we want is the attention on our disability yeah. or on our, the way that we're different from everybody else. That, and that's by the way, funny. that, that when, really when informed dis- a conversation <laughs> that I got in about my wheelchair recently. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Where someone like brought it up in a really awkward way and I felt so uncomfortable <laughs> and I'm like, you just fill in so- the silence with the most obvious thing in the room. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because people don't really know how to handle that anyway. So yeah. if everyone is kind of like politely ignoring it, then that's cool. But then there's that one person that just brings it to the center stage. And by the way, when we are in a phase where we're not thinking about our disease in that moment socially, or we're for, we forgot about it, or we're in the moment. The last thing we want is like for the, you know, the record on the record player to screech. And you're like, we're back in chronic illness land, everybody, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. So yeah, I just, I just would love for people to like know this, but you know, like, I, like I said, I am patient with it. I do try and be understanding. So absolutely. I get it. I know we're going a little long today, but we got to cover all your major pains. There's one okay. left that we haven't talked about. Uh, is it P- PMDD? Is that right? Yes. So it's what is pre-menstru- that? Oh, okay. pre- premenstrual. Is it depression disorder? No, it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Dysphoric and disorder. Okay. Yeah. So for me, this is what I gather because, the, because first I was diagnosed in my 20s with this. Um, I was on such a roller coaster of like changes in mood and behavior and to the point where I actually, and I know I haven't really talked about this out loud, like in public or anything, but I was getting suicidal thoughts every single month, wow. but because my period wasn't very consistent, like, I think I'm like on a moon cycle. Like I get it. Like when the moon, like I'm very delicate with the moon stuff, like it happens. So like, there's no set date where I'm like, I get it every month on this day. No, that was never my thing. So I never correlated it to hormone changes at all until I saw a psychiatrist and he did he actively was interested in that Mm. and he was asking questions and blah 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 and the questions really started triggering like oh god yes yes like it just started making sense he's like you have premenstrual dysphoric disorder and this is how you're you know i didn't really get educated too much on it but basically from like the what i learn is from the communities online and basically it's our bodies our brain is just not 
dealing well with the severe changes in hormones. Like it really is the worst case of PMS you could ever imagine. And I've met a lot of women in the community and it's crazy because a lot of us have probably been undiagnosed for a long time and we've been dealing this probably forever, you know, not forever, but like for a good amount of time. And it's interesting that when we talk to someone who goes through the same thing, the things that we thought were just us or crazy about us, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh my gosh, yes, that was just me yesterday. Or like they'll, we'll message each other and check in. And we know when they disappear off a line, we're like, something's not right. And for me with the women in that community, I actually do get afraid that they're not alive sometimes. Cause when I talk about like, this is not just like, Oh no, life is so bad. I just want to die. No, 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 no. This isn't just a passing thought. We're talking the complete belief that the only solution and way out is death. Like, honestly, like that's how dark it would get in my brain and in my body. I was like, the only way out is to be done with life. And there's no, for some reason, there's like no bright light at the end of the tunnel. It is such like thick darkness in your head. And you just also just don't feel well too, to boot. But to me, I'm talking more about the mental emotional part because I'm so distracted about how miserable I am in my brain that like the chronic pain is almost secondary. And obviously I'm someone who experiences chronic pain all the time. So like that is just something, you know, part of my day. Yeah, but that the mental so part, intense. it is, it really, really is. And it's um, like and every I, month. Yeah. Every month. And I was doing that my whole life and it wasn't until I got on birth control. And I know like some people in the community probably won't like this, but they, it, it doesn't work for a lot of people. But me, I had never been on birth control before in my entire life because I always just wanted to be a mom and I didn't want to mess with the baby making factory. But it was about a year ago was the first time I went on birth control. And I was like, whoa, this is what normal people feel like normal women. (laughs) Like I can tolerate being bitchy and having cravings and getting menstrual cramps easy. If this is, this is fine. It was just the severity of the PMDD that I just didn't even think it was possible to get to that point with just birth control. Wow. I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled to hear that that was helpful, but that's, it's also so fascinating from this point of view of like, sometimes what we experience emotionally is not because of what is in our heads. It is because of Mm -hmm. something chemical happening in our bodies that is altering your state of consciousness and right. to have that go to such a dark place is like, that's dangerous. You know, that's horrifying. And I'm no, so it, glad that you made it through that and got to a place where you found something that helped. Yes. No, it is such a scary thing. And like, I, when I look back on it and I think about myself being in my 20s and in my teens dealing with these kind of thoughts and these kind of feelings, and I kind of try and put myself in the place of people I care about, like my little sister, my big sister, my mom, my friends, whatever. I'm like, I would be terrified for them if they were going through that. And I can't believe that I let that. I can't, not that I let it, but I can't believe that I lived that way for so long. And it's funny that we're talking about this because actually right now I haven't had birth control for two weeks because my doctor wasn't renewing it and refilling it. So I have actually had an episode of a little bit of a depression this week where I was like crying for no reason, really un, just really crazy thoughts. And I was like, okay, it confirmed birth, the birth control works, but I might have a rough month. So Mm. I know what I'm getting myself into this month. I already know this month is going to be a little bit dark and crazy, but now that I know birth, that birth control works for me, I know that that relief is just on the other side and don't get me wrong. Not all months are the same. 
some months, even with birth control, are really crazy. It, it's really, you know, unpredictable. Yeah. And I know that that's not uncommon, like talking to women in the, now I'm not an official like PMDD advocate. I've mainly dealt with like psoriasis and PSA. So this is the first time I'm like really intensely talking about it. I will post things online for my followers who they're like, I had no idea what this was or whatever, but, um, I, I don't know much about it. I am only basing it off of my own experience and the experience of the women that I'm in contact with. So I just want to preface, I'm not yeah. preface, but I want to just note that. Yeah, well, each person's individual experience with chronic illness is equally valid. And right. if this is your experience with this disease, then it is 100% valid. Yeah. And I really appreciate you sharing that. I mean, these are hard, these are all hard things to share, to get up onto a public platform and to talk about. But the the willingness to do so it is it can be so comforting and so validating to other people experiencing something similar. Maybe people who don't even know that that's what's been going on with them, who feel something right. similar. I mean, you know, the the stigma around talking around mental health and and all of that can be so harmful to people getting help. So it is so yes. valuable to share. Yes, and I do feel like what you know sometimes with this whole like mental health stuff, I sometimes feel like people can't win no matter what they do, in the sense that if you don't reach out for help, you're doing something wrong. But if you reach out for help for people, sometimes you're not met with that support and you're kind of met with like people talking about how you're attention seeking. It probably, I don't know if you've experienced this with social media and like people who follow you or whatever, like people tend to just want to lump you into that category of being attention seeking hmm. or, yeah. you know, I'm, monetize off of something. With my doctors so many times that when I started talking about chronic illness, publicly i did it through this platform through the major pain podcast um mm -hmm. very specifically because i didn't want it to just be about my experience i wanted to be sharing other people's experience as well and like right. bu building a collection of experience so it's not like this is not this you know i i i was nervous about that accusation of like being accused of attention seeking i'm i'm documenting a societal issue here with like the way that yeah. people with chronic illness are treated and the way that you know like the, the amount of medical gaslighting that happens and also just trying to spread awareness and and in doing so like making it about the show and not necessarily about me as an individual because i was to be honest like a little too scared to do that because of the way that people are treated i i wasn't quite willing to put myself out there in that way. I'm obviously willing to talk about a lot of things on this show, but it's, it's under the, the platform and not necessarily my own name, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, my thing kind of happened so organically when I got on Instagram because my cousin made me do it. <laughs> and then I, you know, just kind of like 2014, there wasn't this type of like social media craze. Like there was like Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Right. But like now it's just like life, it's everything. So like, mm. I never really, it just, it just happened naturally. Like I, I didn't really decide to do it. Yeah. Like I, I'm going to get an Instagram for this. It was, I have an Instagram and then I just was being transparent. So like, I'm kind of stuck in that. And I've had, I've had people tell me like, not even directly, which by the way, I would respect them more if they did tell me directly, like, girl, I think you're attention seeking. I'd be like, okay, well, let's talk about that. But when they say, well, I don't know if you should post that because what if people think you're attention seeking? I'm like, just tell me you think I'm attention seeking then. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I applaud it, you for it. Absolutely. It's a, it's a hard <laughs> thing you. to do. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so complicated. Like, it's so important to do, you know? Yeah. It's so important yeah. to, to be willing to be open and honest about what you're experiencing. And 
Um, yeah, I absolutely applaud you for it. I totally, I Thank totally you. hear what you're saying, and it's thoughts that kept me from doing something like this for a long time. And when I finally came to it, it was in the way that made me the most comfortable. Right. Um, because like, I, I want to make something that's for the people who need it and not on the radar of the people who don't. You know, I, the yes. last thing I ever yes. want is for people to come on this show and be bullied for what they've said. And, you know, I, right. I haven't heard of a single instance of that in over a year of doing this podcast. Um, but people like you who are putting, you're putting yourself out on the line. And, you know, there's a lot of content creators that I've interviewed who I have seen their content about being bullied because of what they're doing. Um, you know, it's all part of like the ableism problem that is permeating yes. our society and it's making it harder for people to exist when they are living outside of that ableist norm. So yeah, it's really, it's really important work. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot, and honestly, a lot of the times, like, you know, the content out there for people like self-help or like tips or whatever, it doesn't apply to us. A lot of things mm. don't apply to us. And I don't think people realize it. Like they really don't. And I'm so glad you brought up ableism. That's a whole other story. That is a big <laughs> deal. That's a big, big deal. Like, I mean, when it comes to chronic illness, I said this like five times in this conversation, we could just go for hours. Yeah. Like there's racial aspects. There's discrimination. You know, there's just, you know, you know, female versus male. There's a lot of stuff there to unpack. This, and yeah. I do believe, like, I, I actually stopped caring because I, there was a time that people were starting to, like, tell me a little here and there about, like, do you worry that people are thinking you're attention seeking or whatever? That I was like, you know what? How about this? If people don't like what I post or if they think I'm seeking attention, they don't have to give me attention. They don't exactly. have to follow me. Exactly. And so I actually, I might only have 5,000 followers and some change, almost 6,000, but I rather have a tight knit community than a community that is in the five figures that's not authentic, not genuine, not empathetic. Like I'm more about like this mutualistic relationship I have with people in the chronic illness community. Mm -hmm. They get something from me and I get something from them. And that's what matters. And if able-bodied people or if something I post triggers them, they don't have to follow. This is not for them anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the way that it should be is like, you follow what you're interested in and you ignore what you're not. You shouldn't go to the things you're not interested in and tell them how wrong they are for existing. Right. Like, that's ridiculous. And right. unfortunately, that's the internet. But, you know, yeah. the... <laughs> the internet is like this great tool and this horrible curse at the same time. I mean, it's brought us all together, but it's also subjected so many of us to such horrible bullying. Um, oh my God. But, yeah. You know, I don't know. It's... There's just, there's so much to talk about. I can't believe that we have talked for two hours. Like I lost yeah. track of time there. I try to keep my, my podcast to around an hour. Um, but there, <laughs> this has been absolutely amazing. So much great stuff. I have, I have one last question for you before we wrap up. Um, okay. So with everything that you've experienced and, you know, it, it, you've been through so much of learning to live with multiple diseases um, and dealing with your own, you know, the way that you look at yourself and think about yourself has adjusted so much over time to get you to a place where you are managing things, you know, way better than you have in the past. What advice do you have for someone else who's looking to try to make that sort of adjustment? How would you direct someone to, you know, try to begin that journey? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, the first thing that came to mind is like, for instance, the way I think about this is if, if, I had access to little Amy who was first diagnosed, like what I would tell her, like I probably, first of all, I, I would treat her with kindness. So I would definitely want to like encourage people to like not future trip, 
don't like start already like going crazy about all the things that you're not going to have or that are going to change. Because at the end of the day, especially with your newly diagnosed or you're barely staring down the barrel of the situation, you really don't know what the outcome is going to be because your, your situation is not going to look like someone else's, even if they have the same diagnosis. So there's no really, a, there's not that much of a point in like ruminating on like freaking out. Like I would just kind of be like, okay. And then I think secondly, don't, so like I said, for, don't future trip. And then secondly, acceptance. I think acceptance is a really big part of it. Mm. I've met so many people, the most unhappy people that I have met. And I've met a lot of people in this community because I've been working in it a long time and I still work in it a lot. The most unhappy people in our community are the ones that haven't accepted the diagnosis. And it's a way that kind of keeps me on top of my stuff because I'm like, no, 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 no. I can't be like my dad and I can't be like them. No, no, no. Like I absolutely acceptance has been the thing that has helped me the most. So like, I really don't look too far in the future. I don't, you know, try and predict what's going to happen. So I'm in the moment. I accept what's going on. And then I really alter my expectations. We We touched on that. So I would really... You know, but I think that that unfortunately what I'm saying is probably stuff that's not somewhat what someone will be able to do really like the day after they're diagnosed. It's something that's learned over time. But that's what I would tell my my younger self, like in my 20s at least, like don't worry about what's not what's not in existence now, you know, accept it and let's try and create a like let's make the framework of this new life. It's not gonna look like what you thought it would look like. But it's gonna, it's gonna, it can still be good. And I, I, I'm also someone that's super realistic as far as like I'm not really looking to be ecstatically happy every day. I just want to be content and a little bit more comfortable. Like I'm really kind of reaching for like the little goals at a time. And I'm not really looking for my skin to be clear either. I'm looking for just contentment, like where I'm just in a place where I accept the situation and I kind of, I'm at peace with it. Yeah. If that makes sense. I don't know if I answered the question. You answered the question perfectly. I love that okay. advice. That is excellent advice that I spent years coming to very, very similar things to tell myself, you know, and you're, and you're so right that like when you tell yourself those things, if you could go back in time and tell yourself those things, there'd be no way to internalize them, you know? Yeah. There'd be no way to, to take actionable progress on achieving right. those things without kind of suffering through it. But, you know, but I do think that putting those thoughts into other people's heads can at least start the, you know, plant that seed. It might start to grow a little bit earlier than it did for, you know, for you or I who had to come to those conclusions on our own. And for me, it was because I didn't know anyone else going through anything similar. No one was talking about anything like it. So, yeah, Yeah. just having that... um, Having that perspective, I think, is so valuable. And yeah, living right. living for the moment, learning how to make yourself happy day by day, instead of thinking about how to build a happy life in the future, you know, that shift in perspective was massive for me. Like, right. I'm living in the future now. Why am I not building for my happiness now? Right. That's so true. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. And I think it's really about that trying to make your transition in from being able-bodied in your brain to like chronically ill is like really not easy. It really yeah. isn't. And yeah, like, and I, one thing I definitely, cause I get a lot of DMS from people asking me like whether, you know, even things about tattoos, cause I have tattoos or like they're newly diagnosed and they're scared. Like, I think one of the first things that like, I definitely try and encourage them to do is see a specialist, you know, like try. I also, 
so I do tell them to like, you know, try and get in to see a rheumatologist, dermatologist. If we're talking about like psoriasis related stuff, but I also encourage them to find their, their support system. And I'm, I don't mean in their friends and family, because like I said, they, they didn't have, they didn't sign up for it yet, mm. but I really encourage people to find like an online community, like to find their little, their little safety spot where they learn things, where they get validated because like I, you know, moderate for health union too. Like that's another job that I have. And I, even though it's a job, I love it so much. I'm on there every day talking to people who are fighting the good fight. And I go from being all like, you know, grumpy and like, hmm, you know, like annoyed to like being on the site and getting constantly validated for validated for what I'm experiencing every minute. And being validated that I'm not crazy. It's not in my head. Other, I'm not alone. And I get great tips and great encouragement and support. It's like my own little world away from what Amy is doing in, in LA. What I do online with my community is a whole other little safety spot that no one else has access to besides me. It's my little thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It can be so powerful to build community around the thing that you were suffering through alone and that yeah. you thought was just you, you know? Absolutely. I, I, I have gotten so much joy out of doing this podcast and so much self-assurance around what I'm experiencing that I've never had in my life. Um, but yeah, you did a absolutely fantastic job today. Like what a great conversation. <laughs> and I love, I love all the tangents we went on about, you know, just the, the realities of what we're living with as chronically ill people kind of separate from individual conditions in general, but just about what it is to like exist in the world and be chronically ill and to try to date and to try to, you know, accept yourself. Like all those things are so incredibly valuable and so important to talk about. And you spoke on all of them so well. I know Aww. you have so much more to say. And if anyone wants to connect with you to find you on social media, to check out what you're doing online, where would you direct people towards? Well, Amy Stephanie Perez is across the board, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, even though I'm not that active, but it's spelled A-I-M-E-E, -E, then the normal Stephanie with a P-H and then Perez with a Z. Awesome. <laughs> and I'll tag yeah. you on uh, TikTok and Instagram if people want an easy way to find you. Um, yeah, this conversation has been such a joy today. I've had so much fun. I really, really appreciate your time. You know, even even after talking for two hours, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface on your story. But but what we've talked about <laughs> has been amazingly valuable, and I'm so excited to share it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. This was so valuable, and it felt so cathartic to talk to you about this stuff because it's stuff that I feel that the community also wants someone to talk about. Mm. You know, we we really hit some some deep stuff here. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, having a conversation like this is a is one of my great joys in life. It's why I'm a podcaster. And, you know, the fact that we can have this and then share it is just so special. So, yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine, from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, and Alexandria Henderson. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.